This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Before we get started, just wanted to remind you that my next novel, In the Blood, had a date change, and it is not coming out on May 31st anymore. It is coming out on May 17th. So it's coming out in hardcover, coming out in ebook and audiobook with Ray Porter narrating on May 17th, available for pre order now. My guest today, Des Powell. So you may have heard of Bravo 20. Uh, that is an SAS patrol in Iraq that has been documented in a few different occasions, including by Chris Ryan and by Andy McNabb, who were both guests on the podcast last year. And this one is one that I did not know about. Bravo three zero. There were three Bravo patrols. Uh, Bravo one zero, Bravo two zero, and Bravo three zero. Des Powell, second in command of Bravo three zero, tells his story in this latest work, and it is absolutely fantastic. Highly recommended. Had a great time talking to Des Powell. It was such an honor for me to have him on and get to talk to him. Someone with such a vast experience in special operations and uh, just c- couldn't be more honored. So uh, without further ado, let's get after it. Des Powell. You don't really talk too much about uh, the, 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 what you did before this uh, this event with Bravo 3.0. You don't talk too much about what you did afterward um, when you got when you got back. So it's really uh, focused on this uh, this event or this period of time uh, that people already know about from other other books out there, other accounts that are, that are out there. But nothing uh, about this. And I was surprised that I didn't know uh, about this before I I became aware of you and that this book was coming out. And uh, so I was excited to read about this, particularly because uh, of the mobility side of it, the tie to history with David Sterling and the, the early days of the SAS in North Africa and World War II, uh, the lessons that you learned, and then us later doing mobility ops in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and all that. So I was, I was fascinated to read this. But before we get to, to Bravo 3.0, um, did you always know you were going to join the military growing up? Or what was that, what was that like for you, that, that process of, uh, of becoming aware of the military and then, and then joining? Um, no, Jack. Uh, um, I I grew up in the northern part of Sheffield. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, Britain. They call it Sheffield, and it's it's very industrious. Um, my grandfather had been in the Second World War, and my dad had been in national service. So I suppose there was a little bit of indoctrination there without me actually knowing it, you know. But no, I I didn't uh, intend to join the military at all, you know. Um, I suppose it was just as I started growing up, uh, people kept saying to me, uh, right, Des, I think the military would be good for you. And I'm saying, there's no way I'm going to join that. I'm not going to have people shout at me and tell me what to do and what have you. But um, I finished up joining the Parachute Regiment first when I was 20 year old. And then I was in the Paris for approximately eight and a half years. And then I decided then, right, if I'm going to do this serious and uh, make a full career of it. Then I went for the SAS, and I finished up then being in the SAS for approximately 19 years. So all up, the uh, the military service that I did was over 28 years. Now, Jack, I did not plan that. <laughs> I did not plan it at all. I did not 
plan the military, did not plan the regiment, did not plan doing in the SAS. And I certainly didn't plan writing a book either. <laughs> but you know something, Jack, it's, it's funny. You say you're not going to do these things and then you start to go down a path which you go, do you know something, this feels good. And uh, everything that I've done, it just seems to be instinctive, Jack. And uh, do you know something, no regrets. And I'm even enjoying it now. And I'm enjoying doing the book. Hopefully there's going to be more in the future. And, and do you know something, Jack, it's nice doing stuff like this, as we call it, uh, putting water back in the well. That's what we call it. I love that. I, I, I noted that term uh, or that phrase in the book when you, when you mentioned it. And I, I took special note of that. And I really liked that you, that you used that. Uh, but you, you were always into yeah. physical fitness and, and martial arts and that sort of a thing. Uh, and it, so it seemed like the military was a, uh, those people that were advising you to go that route, they might've, they might've been onto something. Uh, because even in, in one para, you, you took a, a route of being kind of that, that fitness guy, that, uh, that, that focused disciplined person that's going out there and, and, uh, and learning about these different martial arts or things that could, could help you in the, in the parachute regimen. Is, is that right? Yes, I would agree with that. I was always, yes, I was into martial arts. I, I, I liked doing boxing and then I did other martial arts as well. And I suppose what I liked about that, Jack, was the discipline. And I think in the military, that's what I always liked in the military, the discipline side. But yes, when I was young, I was always very, very physical. And obviously that helped me getting into the military as well. And then when I was in the parachute regiment, and especially then when I went to the SES, the martial arts uh, come into vogue then because they started to lean on me and they started to say, right, would you like to get involved in this? Would you like to uh, do more of martial arts within the regiment itself? Mm -hmm. um, and yes, so there was periods, for example, I had a period when I was in the VIP wing. Most people know it as the bodyguard wing. And there was a lot of kind of martial arts in that as well. But it was very basic, down-to-earth martial arts, only stuff that works, Jack. So, yes, answering your question, a long-winded answer is that the physicality really helped me because I was into martial arts. That certainly helped in the parachute regiment and definitely when I joined the SAS as well. Yeah. And then parachute regiment, what is that like? Do you go into the military to join the parachute regiment or do you try out for that at some point during uh, your version of basic training or what is that pipeline like? Yes. What happens is in the British military, you know, we've got lots of regiments. You've got like the guards regiment, you've got the signals regiment and I joined the parachute regiment. And it was funny when I was at the careers office, um, the careers officer said to me, hi, he says, I think you'd be good in a parachute regiment. And I remember posing and going, um, now the leg, them guys jump out of airplanes. He goes, yes, they do. But he says, don't you worry about that. He says, you will be ready. He says, it'll be time you jump out on any aircraft. Um, the point I'm making, that guy at the careers office did his job. He saw something in me that he, he, he thought, right, this guy would be good in the parachute regiment. Now, as you know, in the British military, the paras and the Marines tend to be the spearhead of the armed forces. I'm, I mean, no disrespect to any other regiments, um, simply because there's many, many fine regiments in the British Army. In fact, the SES is made up of many, many regiments together. But I joined the Punishment Regiment at first, and it does what it says on the can. They're a tough bunch of guys. And, you know, I know you, you had, you, you've got your 82nd Airborne, and you had 101st as well, and Air Assault and all of those. So they're a tough bunch of guys. and. Um, 
and that appealed to me. Mm. And I can honestly say, Jack, that being in the parachute regiment certainly prepared me for going up to the SES. Um, I think it gives you more exposure to the regiment simply because you've got that airborne brotherhood. Mm -hmm. It's like a sister regiment, if you like. Um, before you go up to join the SES, you don't know much about it, but you probably get more exposure to it, probably more than any other regiment than you would do in the parachute regiment. So for me, joining the Paris initially was definitely a good step for me. I think if I hadn't joined the Paris, there was probably a good chance that I might not have joined the SES, Jack. Yeah. So um, I had eight and a half years and I really, really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Now, during that time, did you did you deploy anywhere during that time? Or is it mostly training up uh, in the UK or in, in, in Europe in general? Or what did you do with the, the parachute regiment during that time? Yeah, you? in the parachute regiment, did we uh, Northern Ireland, okay. uh, Germany, Cyprus, Hong Kong. And um, it, it tends to be you had like UN tours, United mm. Nations tours, where you go to certain countries. You can do six months, you can do a year, you can do two years. But yes, I, I got around the globe a fair bit when I was in the, the Paris. Um, I, I, I love the physicality of it. I love the, the toughness of, of it, the hardness and the, the discipline, especially. Um, you tend to go through harder training uh, within the Paris simply because of the airborne side itself. And doing the airborne side itself is also an indication that in the future you may go special forces. Because as you know, Jack, all special forces are airborne trained. So for me, it was definitely the round peg in the round hole. It's, uh, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. I love it. I love you. Find you, you, you knew your, that's great to find that, that passion and, uh, and to be on that track and know you're in the, in the right place and then to have options from there. Um, that's fantastic. Did now did, and the tour to Northern Ireland, did it, uh, did any of that prepare you for, for future combat? What was it like to deploy up to, uh, to Northern Ireland? Yes, it's um, it's like anything else. It's a, um, yes, it's a difficult environment, and uh, it's um, it's all what you've heard it to be. Um, I think yes, it's like anything else. It, it, I think any experience that you have around the world, you know, I think it's any experience that you can have prepares you for anything that comes up, and especially when you go to the regiment in the SAS, you find yourself going to countries that you wouldn't normally go to and and any preparation that you can have beforehand uh, has got to help you uh, within that job itself so so yes it uh, it certainly helped me for future operations that came up and then you uh you, you went to selection you got the you had the honor of going to selection twice um so and and you made it to that jungle phase and you made it close to that point where if you get hurt they roll you forward we have that same thing in hell week and buds i think it's you know, it's a little bit ambiguous depending on the person and then who's in charge and if they want you or not and all that sort of thing. But if you make it past like a, a certain time, like a into Thursday or something and you get hurt, yes. sometimes they roll you forward um, just because the amount of quitters that we get after a Wednesday night drops off significantly. And you're just kind of a zombie at that point, making it through the, the rest of the week. But yeah, you made it to right before that point and then you get hurt and they're like, Hey, guess what? <laughs> you didn't make that, that cut. I don't know how much longer you had a day or two or whatever it was, but you had to go back to the beginning and do it all again. So what was that experience like? Yes. It, it, uh, joining the SES, they only allow you uh, to go twice. 
And it doesn't matter how you fail. It doesn't matter whether you have an injury. It doesn't matter whether you've got to go to hospital for something. They just class that as a fail. Oh. And, um, and you know, some people say, so what was it like? Is the first time harder, the second time harder? Well, guess what? The second time, you know exactly what's coming, don't you? You know, mm. And um, it, it's as simple as this, Jack. And, you know, I, I mean, the, the training that we do in the SF fraternity is, is very, very hard. I mean, to join the regiment, uh, the failure rate is 90% failure rate. And uh, um, it's very, very hard. And yes, it was very, very disappointing when I got injured and I had to come back a second time. Um, on selection, I, I talk in the book a, a little bit about selection. And it's, it's, um, if you, 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 it's over six months and, and then you're on probation then for three years and they don't shout at you, they don't scream at you. Uh, they just ask you politely to do something and then you do it. And it's a mixture of um, mental strength, uh, physical strength. And, and I suppose we call that stress. So mental stress, physical stress and sleep deprivation stress. They find that using those three types of stresses will bring out the real you. Um, so the selection process, I think, is very, very good, Jack. And they reckon the selection process has been going since the 50s. And by using this process, the selection process chooses you. Mm. The instructors that are there uh, just make sure that the process stays uh, in, in uh, that it's done correctly. Um, when you first start, I remember on selection, there were about 250 on us. And the instructor said, please look around. So we're all looking at each other like this. And they said, within a month to six weeks, uh, there's about 250 of you now. You will be down to about 45 guys. And then another month to six weeks after that, you'll be down to half that again. So um, they just say, look, if you don't want to turn up in the morning, you're finding this too hard, just stay in bed but make sure you hand your kit in by lunchtime. And, and what it is, Jack, is that the SF uh, world, uh, being in the SAS, is not for everyone. Um, but the process itself, I think, is very, very good. It chooses you. Mm. Because when you go up there, there's some guys like the idea of being in the SAS. But when you get a reality check, they go, hmm, this might not be for me. Yeah. Some people just leave automatically. So the system itself chooses you or the system itself kind of lets you know that it's not for you. Luckily, I got through a second time and uh, I managed to have a long career, Jack. Again, yeah. I really enjoyed my time within the SAS. Yeah, no, I mean, SAS selection obviously is a... Uh uh, been the foundation for many other special operations forces around the world that have studied that people have gone there like Charlie Beckwith for, for who later founded Delta, of course. Um, and, and so you have that, uh, that phase in the beginning where you're, you're, uh, patrolling through the mountains, you have your rucksack on, you're orienteering, you're finding your way patrolling, and then you go to the jungle and you, a lot of people, it's their first time in this environment, an environment that can kill you just as easily as, uh, as easily as gunfire, um, and the enemy. But, uh, and then you go to that E&E &E phase, which is always the one that is fascinating to me because you put in all this, all this time, and then you get thrown into something that uh, seems to have a little bit more uh, secrecy surrounding it. And 
anyway. And uh, that that E and E seer or whatever that it's uh, however it's termed, and you get to do that. So how how was that experience for you? Was that uh, was that one that you learned a lot from, or that you just had to like get muscle through and get to the end? Yeah. Now th- th- this one, yes, th- this was the period that I'd never ever done anything like this before. You know, the, the first phase tends to be the whole phase, the fitness phase, navigation, as you said, the middle phase tends to be the jungle, but the last phase had done nothing like this before. So in a way, this one scared me the most. This one, I thought, you know, it, it's more easier to fail because you haven't experienced it before. And what they do, they, they, they learn you how to kind of live off the land um, they teach you how to navigate uh, by yourself or in very, very small groups. And, and then they send a hunter force after you as well. So they chase you for quite a few weeks over the hills. And it's normally up in Wales where we do all our training in, in, uh, in the Brecon Beacons. Uh, this is where all the British Army do their training. And, but then at the end of that phase you you are caught and you put in what is called the pen and you are interrogated then for two or three days and uh, um, you're interrogated it's um you have it's the the good guy the bad guy you have the lady you have uh, people with uh, funny accents um but it's 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 all done very very real and again it's you, you, you are, you are fully aware that you're being tested and you are fully aware that you can fail at any time. Um, but yes, this, I found it particularly hard. Um, this, this is the phase that um, a lot of people trip up on because you're coming to the end of your six months training. Um, uh, like myself, a lot of people haven't experienced this. And it's very, very easy, Jack, to slip up. It's very easy to do something wrong, very easy to say something wrong, especially when you've been on the run for many weeks and especially when you're being interrogated as well. It's, it's, it's very, very real. So um, if anything, you, you, you can make a mistake. Um, luckily for myself, I, I managed to get through again. And, uh, um, but answering your question, uh, yes, I did learn a lot. It was very, very hard. The whole of it was very, very hard, but especially that phase was was very, very difficult. Yes. Yeah, that's an interesting one because we do our Sear school, which was really based on at like the time when I when I did it back in ninety seven or ninety eight. Um, really based on the Vietnam experience and uh, that Vietnam prison camp and the, the sights and the smells and the accents and all that stuff was kind of based around around that. And then later, I think, it was, yeah, still pre-September 11th, I did an advanced seer that was more based upon, hey, you get, you know, kidnapped in Beirut type of a thing. Uh, and then they throw you in yes. front of the CNN cameras and, you know, the, all, yes. all that that sort of thing. So it was a little, little different. But once again, uh, sights, smells, sounds, uh, like you're in Beirut or somewhere like that. Uh, anyway, so that was interesting. But what I took away from both of those is... Do not get captured. Like I'm going to get on these. That's why I've always been a runner. And uh, so yes. I always figure my E&E kit, uh, I'm not going to be hanging out fishing, uh, you know, with a little tiny fishing thing. I'm going to be running like, just like Chris Ryan, the one that got away. I'm running to that Syrian border. Yes. That is my E&E yes. kit right there. I'm going to be in shape enough to do that. Yes. I'm going to be aware enough of what's going on around me, uh, know how to navigate yeah. and know how to move out uh, and not get captured. Cause, oh my gosh, that was, anyway, that was my, my takeaway from that, uh, that uh, a similar type of experience anyway. Yeah. 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 
And then uh, from the parachute regiment, did you already have your halo and hey-ho type training or was that more static line? And then you did do more advanced uh, free fall type parachuting uh, once you got to the regiment. Is that how that works? Uh, yes. Uh, in the parachute regiment, I just did static line jumping. And then when I uh, joined the SAS, as you know, you can, uh, the troops, we have mobility troop, uh, mountain troop, uh, boat troop and air troop. I went to air troop and that is when you specialize then in your uh, halo and hey-ho, high altitude, low opening, high altitude, high opening. Um, for people that's listening, that's dealing at 25,000 feet, um, uh, jumping with oxygen, normally at night with equipment. Uh, free falling is normally about two minutes free fall. Uh, the speed you reach in free fall, uh, terminal velocity is 120 miles an hour, changing the shape of your body. You can come up to speeds of 180 miles an hour. Um, it's very, very dangerous. Like all this stuff is we do, Jack, isn't it? You know, and um, so if you collide with anyone in the sky or it, you hit any equipment because you jump out with equipment, which is on a drove chute, um, you you can have some real problems. Um, I've had colleagues that have friends that have actually died doing this sort of training. So, um, yes, so um, it's, but when it goes well, it's, it's very, very satisfying. Very scary. Yes, I, I can admit every time doing that, uh, jumping with oxygen at night, free falling, um, sometimes in really cold countries. In fact, I talk about a particular story in the book, don't yep. I, when I'm in a, a very cold country, sub-zero temperatures of 20, 30 below, and um, I have a problem, and uh, I start to float into a country that I shouldn't be floating into, but uh, um, I won't give too much away of that story. Will oh, I was going to ask you, you know? specifically about it because it plays into <laughs> actually some things that are happening in the news right now. I mean, we're focused on Ukraine, but there's some other things that, that Russia is doing at the same time. If you look at new bases going in up, uh, up near the, in and around the Arctic circle for those shipping lanes. Um, and you had a, you had a close call up there. Um, but that wasn't your only close call doing free fall. I think you had like three or four malfunctions and that's where you get your nickname. Is that how that, is that how that works? Yes, it's, uh, it's funny, Jack. I, I don't seem to have much uh, um, luck parachuting. Yes, they, um, I, they used to call me Kamikaze Des because I've had three malfunctions. Now people always said to me, they go, um, so what's that like, Des? And uh, uh, put it this way, um, you look up and um, the shoot is not what you want to see. Um, it, 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 we call it a bag of washing. In in UK, uh, if we look up and we don't like what we see, it's uh, it's normally something that oh right, I need to get rid of that. And there's a there's a process that we call Jack called cutting it away. And and cutting it away is a is a procedure that you pull a handle on your uh, harness, which releases that chute, and then you pull another handle, which brings you onto your reserve. And so I've had to do that three times. <laughs> and um, it works every single time because I'm here to talk about it. And some people say, well, what happens if you go on to your reserve, Des, and that doesn't work? And I say, well, it's just not your day, you know. But um, do you know something, Jack, on that, even though um, parachuting is a very, very dangerous uh, hobby, if you like, you know, you have um, guys that do um, uh, sport parachuting, if you like, 
but you very, very rarely hear of any fatalities. Even though it's dangerous, it's a very, very well-governed sport. The things that you tend to have is, you know, twisted ankles, you know, broken mm. legs, things like that. If you come in wrong or you're coming too fast. But um, unfortunately, on military parachuting, when you're carrying all the equipment and you're carrying weapons and it's at night and you're on oxygen, and it's freezing up your goggles and it's freezing up your altimeters and it's freezing up your oxygen and you can't breathe properly and you're bumping into people in the sky and what have you. Well, then that is when you earn your money, Jack, isn't it? You know, and um, so, yes, um, I've had three malfunctions. Luckily, I'm still here to talk about it. And uh, we've got uh, a few stories in the book which talks about that as well. Yep. Now, that's, uh, that's the training in and of itself is just so inherently dangerous and I've lost multiple friends over the years, as have uh, have you, yeah, all of us in special operations uh, have. Even in my free fall class, we lost an instructor and a student who collided uh, in the air. They smashed heads wow. in the air. Uh, so wow. we had to get on the you know in the desert and get online and go go find them. Uh, uh, yes, find those bodies. But uh, it's just uh, yeah. So I don't do it uh, in my free time now. I think I've I've had sufficient as uh, as as some like to say. I'm I'm good. I don't need to jump out anymore planes, I don't think. I think sensible I've thing to do. Sensible <laughs> thing to do, Jack. Neither do I. No, I've, I've stopped all that. So I've stopped it all. Oh, yeah. There we go. We're getting a little wiser in our old age then. Uh, <laughs> and then when yeah. you show up in the, in your, get your first squadron, do you have um, veterans of Prince's Gate in the, in there? Are you getting those those stories from what it was, uh, from what that operation was like? Uh, yes, that, that was just before my time, but obviously I joined the squadron that had been involved in the Iranian embassy siege. So there were guys that were there that uh, um, that had been in that operation, and um, and yes, and and that really, Jack, uh, was the first time that anyone had actually seen the regiment on TV, mm. um, because um, what it was when the Iranian embassy siege came about, all the cameras down in London captured it. And of course, this is, was the first time they'd seen the regiment in, in what is known as the Black Gear. Okay. And then I think most people can remember um, seeing that or seeing footage that you can see on, on YouTube about that particular operation. And it's actually captured on film. Mm -hmm. You can actually see it. And of course, I joined B Squadron, that was the squadron that actually carried out that operation. So, when I joined the squadron, there were guys that had already been in that operation and, and obviously told me all about it. And, uh, yeah. and I thought to myself, oh, I think I've joined the right squadron here. If we're going to get involved in some stuff, this is the squadron to be with. Um, and in actual fact, it weren't far wrong because uh, it was B squadron then, the Bravo patrols that actually got involved in the first Gulf War, which we talk about in the book. Yeah, no, it's incredible. Um, and, and that surprised me too, because, you know, it was one of my first uh, uh, touch points with the SAS was seeing that as a very young kid, already knowing that I wanted to go into the military. And um, and then of course, later I have a poster of it uh, down in the garage, uh, which is a, an HK commercial because, you know, you got the MP5s yeah. there and, uh, you know, that's that kind of made that, uh, that uh, weapon iconic uh, in yes. a lot of people's eyes. Uh, and it is a great, it's a, it's a, wow, what a great 
weapon to shoot. But um, uh, so I have that. I mean, it's a, such incredible pictures. And I think it inspired a generation of people to join the military and to go into special operations in particular, because they saw the yes. SAS do that. And they, if they were reading anything at the time in the 80s, they saw uh, the rise of militant Islam and terrorism and saw, hey, this is going to be probably our generation's battle, our generation's fight. Uh, and if you want to be in that fight and be at the tip of the spear on that fight, you're going special operations. Um, yes. At least that's how it was for for me anyway. And then did you also have uh, veterans of the Falklands? Were they uh, also in and around the squadrons and passing on lessons from uh, the Falklands War? Yes. Yes, they were veterans from the Falklands as well. And, and I think in the regiments, uh, um, this that you had many, many people that had been in, in many, many operations around the world. I mean, that's what the regiment does. It gets busy and it it always pokes its nose into other people's business around the world, you know. And um, and yes, there is, you know, it's a vast amount of, of knowledge. In, in fact, you know something, Jack, but when I first arrived at the squadron, is that, you know, people often ask me, they said, so what was it like, Des, you know, your kind of week to week, month to month, you know, joining the regiment and, and straight away, you know, you've touched on it is that there's just this vast um, energy of, of knowledge. Everyone has done something. I mean, there were guys that had not only been on many, many operations that we've, we've talked about, but there was guys that had, uh, had climbed Everest, had just come back off an expedition. There was guys that had uh, rode certain parts of the Atlantic there were guys that had come back off speaking Russian courses for 18 months and were speaking it fluently. There were guys speaking Arabic fluently. There were guys that had, had done free fall records and, and, had, and had done safaris across the deserts. And, and it, it was just this, it was just immense, an immense feeling. It was just limitless, I think the word is, is to be used. And do you know something, Jack? What they did is they encourage you to be part of it. They wanted you to be the best you possibly could at everything you did. And you know, Summer, you know, you had all of this positivity and this energy. Everybody wanted to be the best at what they did. A funny story, there was a guy that went away on a, a medical course and he had um, learned to deliver babies. And uh, um, that was part of his, you know, part of his, his medical uh, attachment, if you like, at the hospital. And his wife was pregnant and his wife went into labor and he couldn't get her to hospital on time. So he decided to deliver the baby himself. And, uh, um, and, it w and of course, that was really funny uh, stories like that. There was another story of a guy that um, run cross countries and he was supposed to turn up for a cross country competition, which was about eight mile running. And he couldn't get there because his car had broken down. So what he did, he actually run <laughs> 10 miles to the event. Okay. <laughs> then he ran eight miles competition. Uh -huh. He came within the top five. Then he only run back again. And of course, you can imagine you've got these stories which are going round the actual regiment itself. But they're inspiring, Jack, you know, and this limitless feeling that you could be part of this regiment. And suddenly you just realize, you go, this is my time. You know, this is me. This is what I wanted to do. This is what I'm designed to do. And the guys that go up to the regiment, they don't have short careers. 
everyone has long careers uh, like me. Mm. You know, they have at least 10 years. I, you know, I had, I think it's just over 19 years. And I think what it is, guys realize that this is their time. And guys only go up to the regiment if they're serious. These very, very few guys that get out early. Um, so most guys have long careers. Most guys do many, many operations. And, and most guys that I talk to go on to have just a, a normal, happy family life as well. I think for us, Jack, I think, as one of my friends said to me, Des, you was never going to have a midlife crisis, was you? And no, I wasn't. I was going to make sure that I did every single thing. And I think today, Jack, I think uh, I feel really, really content. There's nothing really more that I'm kind of hitching to do. Put it this way. I don't have an inkling to go and climb Everest. Put it that way. (laughs) You're good. And uh, Yeah. And, uh, and, and I don't want to go parachuted anymore and uh, <laughs> uh-huh. stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Um, so, the, so the thing is, I, I think the regiment really brings the best out in you. And you know, some Jack, at the end of the day, like you guys, you know, you're really helping people, aren't you? You know, you're out to help as many people yeah. as you can. And that's got to be a pretty good profession, hasn't it, Jack? Yeah, no, it's all about helping those who can't help themselves. I mean, I've always thought about it in those, in those terms well before I even, uh, even joined the military. Um, and you're part of something, I mean, you touched on something there about being part of this history. I mean, you're part of this, this lineage, um, these generations that passed on, uh, a reputation to you, uh, that you are now entrusted to carry on going forward. Um, but can you talk a little bit about that history of the SAS of David Sterling in North Africa? Cause that plays into something that you're going to be directly involved in shortly after you get to, to the regiment there. Um, cause I love those pictures of David Sterling and those guys in the desert, um, in their, in their, uh, their vehicles all kitted up and, those are such iconic photos. And, uh, of course they did, uh, they're, they're part of not just the history of the regiment, but special operations in general for all of us and something that connects, connects all of us, regardless of which special operations service we come from. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Is that, uh, the, the book came out just before Christmas or, uh, this year, obviously 22 last year, 21. Okay. Was the 80th birthday of the regiment, the regiment, was um, first born first uh, of July, 1941. And its founder was a guy called David Sterling. Now, David Sterling was a young officer and he, he came up with an idea. He said that um, if we have a small group of guys um, that can be fairly intensely trained and that can think a little bit outside of the box and be a little bit robust and they would be far more successful than a larger, larger group of guys, of regiments, if you like. And, and he put this theory to the hierarchy. Um, they were fighting the Brits in the Second World War. They were fighting out in North Africa at that time. And the base um, of, of the British armed forces then was in Egypt, in Cairo. And he put this to the uh, hierarchy. And surprisingly, they went for it. And that was the birth of the regiment. And what they gave him, they gave him 60 guys. And they said, okay, start to do your training. And that was the birth of the SES, which was 1st of July, 1941. Uh, So last year was the birth. It was the 80th anniversary of the SES regiment. And and by the way, it was the 30th anniversary of the first Gulf War as well. So when the book came out last year, it was... Uh, commemorating those two birthdays, if you like. But yes, David Sterling had this vision 
of the SF, uh, of, of special forces. And, and it was that that started the SF mindset, if you like. And, uh, um, and yes, and uh, that's what started the SES off. It was David Sterling. Um, and we had lots of success uh, in North Africa fighting Rommel. Um, that is where the, uh, it was the Jeeps at that time. We obviously uh, had Land Rovers out in the desert, but it was small raiding parties attacking um, these uh, enemy installations out in North Africa. And they had lots and lots of success. Then the war went over to Europe and the success was even further than with the regiment going all the way through the war. And, um, and yes, and it's, it's carried on all the way up until today, up until, uh, uh, it, was, it was particularly nice, as I said, bringing out the book on the 80th anniversary of the regiment. Uh, that was, um, you know, pretty cool, if you like. I, I yeah. quite like that. But it did, what I do like, Jack, you've touched on it, is that we are linked with a regiment. Um, and it's, it's, it's nice for me to bring out a book of, of, of modern history, if you like, mm-hmm. modern warfare. And, and uh, we, myself, and, uh, go down in history now with the regiment. So that is particularly satisfying for me, Jack. It's, um, it really is, uh, it really is a nice feeling to think not only have I served with the regiment, but now I've been linked with operations with the regiment and also brought out a book talking about the operations that have been on and in within the SAS itself. Yeah. And it's interesting that some of the pictures of, uh, of you guys in the desert don't look that much different than David Sterling's vehicles back, uh, back. Maybe they should have looked a little different uh, all those years later, but, uh, but a lot, they look very, very similar and doing a similar type of uh, type of a mission. Um, well, it's also interesting there in, in the book, you talk about his founding principles and you talk about humility, a classless society, humor, discipline, and the relentless pursuit of excellence. And I just love that. Uh, and uh, I believe Winston Churchill, you'll probably know the quote uh, better than I do. Winston Churchill has a great quote when he's talking about SAS option, uh, operations in North Africa that's just fantastic. You'd never hear a politician say anything like that today. It's like leaving a trail of bodies across the dead, whatever. It, it, it's, it's awesome. You know, like Churchill just had the best phrases, uh, hands down, of, uh, of any modern leader. Yes. Um, but I love that you talk about, about those yes. things. And in, in your experience in the SAS, it seems like anyway, that those founding principles, uh, all those years later, still form the basis of the relationships and the leadership within the SAS. No, I agree. And when you think about it, it, I think it's the same for all of the SF uh, fraternity. I mean, um, yes, discipline uh, straight away is, is one of them. You know, humor. I mean, humor gets you through a lot of uh, problems. I know he talks about a strange one there, which, you know, a classless society, you know, and, and what it, it probably means probably back then and what it means today is that it's, you know, is that, Rank really didn't matter that much, and and when we're in the regiment, our our officers, you know, it's is you know we call them boss. We don't call them sir, and we don't salute and stuff like that. So we're on the same level, and that's what he really meant there. That it's a, a classless society. You know, it's the relentless pursuit of excellence. You are always trying to make yourself better. Whenever we do our operation, we come back and we just go, right, what went right but also what went wrong, not to point the finger, but just to say, well, next time 
we won't do that. We will do this and that will make it better. So these principles, if you like, they may sound like common sense, but it's, it's, yes, they are still used today like they are then. And I think they can be used outside of the military. I, I think it's ingrained in me so much now that I've been with the regiment all these years that these things just come naturally. I mean, the discipline, definitely, I just, I can't have, dis, you know, I've got to have life with discipline, you know, and humour. I always like a good laugh. And when things get bad, it's, you know, it's best to look on the bright side, as they say, you know, and, you know, classless society, you know, treat everyone the same, you know, and, and, and yes, you know, humility. You know, we, we do some great things, but it's no use sticking our chest out and showing off about it and what have you, is it, uh, you know, it's you've got to be humble, you know, because, you know, what I do realize, like yourself, Jack, you know, is that, you know, d- d- you have a responsibility. Uh, I mean, since I've been out, you know, I still realize that people still look at me because I was in the SES. And when I was in the regiment, it was a big thing to go for the SES. And it's good to see here in Simi Street that people still think the same way and still respect you. Mm -hmm. So guess what? It's best that I uh, am responsible grown up and act a certain way. I think there's a certain protocol of the way we should speak and the way we should act. I think it comes with a territory, Jack. You know, it comes with what we've done. You know, people expect this of us. So these these things that I've been talking about are ingrained in me, and I think it's something that 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 maybe it should be took on board by most people because these things can be used in everyday life. Put it this way: it certainly helped me. And uh, David Sterling, you know, was was a great man, and he he certainly knew that in there about the SF uh, side of life. I mean, it's a way of thinking when you think about it. Oh yeah, and especially using these things within life itself, and especially in the regiment. But uh, yes, and I know you know yourself in the seals. You know, it's it's the same sort of thing. It's that same mindset. I mean, in the book, uh, as you know, it's I talk about a seal team that you I come do. across. You know, and uh, and I so I'm not just saying it's it. on the show. It's actually in in the book. And you know, Summit, what I noticed, Jack, when I was with the seal team when I was out. In Saudi Arabia, we was in Al Jouf at this big airfield. What I noticed when we were sat down at night, we were living outside under the stars, and we were just sat there in a fire, you know, and we call it having a ginganguli, you know, it's like being on a, a camping thing. And what I noticed, your guys were just the same as us. We chose to be there. Yeah. It was no use whinging or whining or belly aching. We knew what was coming. Mm. We knew it was difficult. But guess what? We knew that we wanted to help people, and we knew that there's a job to be done. What I liked about it, when I was sat there with your guys, they were no different than us. Yeah. You know, we were laughing and joking. We were humble. Yeah. You know, I could see the discipline. And, you know, some night after night, I used to go back to and guys sit around the fire. Your guys would give us a cup of coffee or a couple of cho- chocolates and break out the MREs. And we just laugh and joke and what have you. Yeah, and in the book, Jack, as you know, yeah, as you know, I tell a story about your guys helping me out when, uh, you know, I was, I was, it was a few days before we were going to go out on the mission of Bravo 30. 
And I was embarrassed to see that we were short on equipment. Now, Jack, I hope you don't mind me saying, but when I looked at your guys, <laughs> your guys have all the kit, you know, yeah. you will look the part, you have a certain, you have a certain <laughs> way about you, but your guys had everything, you know, and I was capping on and I said to your guys, I goes, look guys, um, we're a bit short on equipment. Could you help us with E and B and C and D and this? And he goes, and one of your guys said to me, he goes, what is it with your Brits? He goes, you turn up to a war, to a conflict with just about nothing. And he says, <laughs> then you come over to us, scrounge all the kit off us. And he, uh, but we were laughing about it. But yeah. you know something, Jack, your guys were really, really good to me. They really helped me out. They gave me lots of equipment. And in the book, they even gave me some ammunition that I needed um, yeah. for certain weapon systems that we yeah. didn't have. And your guys were very, very good to let me have that. They were, they were spot on, uh, Jack. They did a great job. I loved reading that in the book, and I can totally, I could totally picture that happening. I mean, because we're all there, we're all part of the same team, we're all part of that same fraternity. We're going to help each other out. I saw the same thing in Iraq all, years later uh, in Baghdad, um, working right next to uh, to you guys, the SAS right there uh, in Baghdad, and saw that same type of camaraderie, that same yeah. uh, type of everybody being part of this fight, whether no matter whether they came from the UK or the US, didn't matter. We were on the same mission yeah. together. We're going to share intel. We're going to share everything we possibly can. Uh, to get this yeah. get this done, um, and part of that uh, that goes back to to David Sterling's principles. I think a lot of that's like an operational maturity, and you see it before you get there because you hear stories about the SAS, you hear stories, or at least I did, about the SEAL teams. Um, and there's this operational maturity to it, which is part of that is the humility. Is that it's that humor, it's that classless society. You're not hey, not hey, it's not about the rank. It's about uh, your operational prowess, essentially, um, and your reputation that is all based upon your character, of course. Um, but uh, but I, I love those similarities between your former yes. unit and uh, and ours here in the in the U.S. And actually, it's two of my favorite photographs come from the SAS. And uh, one of them are, are the series of the, the ones from David Sterling in North Africa. And then the other one, and I know you'll know which one it is, it's the, the guy, single, he's alone. He's in Oman. I guess it's in the 70s probably. Uh, and he's sitting up on this rock and he's got his beard and he's got his stuff on. He's kind of got some uh, Western stuff on, some indigenous stuff on. He's got this old bolt action rifle there with an old scope on it. And he's just his eyes are just looking out over the desert and uh, it's such an iconic photo. And uh, so it's interesting that two of my favorite special operations photos are both of, uh, of guys in the SAS. Yes. They're, they're great photographs. I know exactly what photographs you're, you're on about, you know, ones with David Sterling where they lined up in their mm -hmm. Jeeps, you yeah. know, they've got the shimags on them, whatever you, that's an iconic photograph. You're right. And then the other one, yes. And, uh, with a guy and he has the shimag on, I believe that's in the Oman. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, and yes, he uh, it's just some great pictures. You're, you're right. And 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 you know, Smith, you know, you you were talking about certain, you know, pictures of weapons or certain of of, of soldiers or whatever you that kind of inspired you to to join the the your regiment or the military. And and it's it's been the same with me. It's it's like um I remember when I joined the SES, such photographs that you've talked about was the same for me. But to join Air Troop, I remember seeing a guy and he was head to toe in. He looked like a, um, a spaceman. He had all the oxygen on and the goggles and stuff. And I thought, wow, what is that? I haven't seen that before. 
And that's one of the reasons I joined Air Troop. Wow. I remember it said something underneath like a specialized unit within a specialized regiment. And I nice. thought, yes, that's for me. I love and the troops should have it. Um, Jack, I would have had a go at mobility and, and mounted and boat and, and all of them. But um, we, you would tend to specialize in one. I was lucky in the first year I joined mobility for a year mm. and that helped me. And then I went over to air troop, but just like you, Jack, there were certain things, pictures, that were just iconic or become iconic. Mm -hmm. And it was that that kind of gave me inspiration to go, yes, that is what I want to be or that is what I want to do. Yeah, no, I love that. And uh, and going back to, to to the gear part, so you're you're in Saudi Arabia, you're sitting down with the seals, and you're like, hey, what's that Gore-Tex stuff you guys have? It's a little colder here than we were we were briefed. We thought it was going to be you know Great Britain in the spring or something, uh, and it's a little colder than that. Um, so I, so I love that you got to pilfer some gear from our guys. Um, but it was interesting when you first got the mission. Uh, and you had to go turn in uh, your black kit. So you're like uh, counter-terror stuff and had to get yeah. the stuff for the desert. And that surprised me as well. I mean, I'd read the other accounts of, uh, of, uh, of, 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 uh, of the war and that talks about the older kits and freezing and having cotton and just all that sort of a thing. But I didn't realize that you had to share kit with other uh, groups within the regiment and actually turn it in. Uh, and not, it just wasn't yours. That was surprising uh, the, to me. Yeah, yeah. What it was right at the beginning, um, uh, Jack, is that, as you can appreciate, because the way conflict goes, it's so fast and it's so kind of chaotic and what have you, is that we had two squadrons that had already been out in the Middle East that had been preparing. Mm -hmm. So they were already, they were already battle ready. So they come in, got all the equipment, and their job was to cross over the border. Um, this was A and D squadron. They were to cross over the border of Saudi Arabia and fight all the way up independently of the desert all the way to Baghdad. I was a B squadron. Okay, we came in after the war and our initial um, mission was BCRs, battle casualty replacements. We were told we were going to lose a lot of guys. So pure and simply, the two squadrons that are prepared, anyone that had been injured or was dead, we were to replace them. It's only afterwards that we got involved in the uh, Bravo patrols, the Bravo 1, 2, and 3, 0. That came afterwards. But yes, at the beginning, because of the chaos and because of the speed that everything moves at, is that there was a lot, uh, there was a lack of equipment. That's mm -hmm. why we went to the SEALs and we were asking them. But there was lack of cold weather gear, there was lack of clothing, there was lack of battle-ready vehicles, there was lack of um, certain ammunition, okay? There was lack of certain weapons. There were some weapons that had been left behind. And some got um, lost, right? Your Browning High Powers yeah, never even made it. Yes. They got lost in transit yeah, yeah, or something. The, the, the pistols, the pistols, for whatever reason, our, our sidearms had been left behind. And, um, and then our map our mapping on my map, it said 1942. Okay. The, I, we wear a smock, as you know, it's like a windproof. Mm -hmm. In the hood of the windproof, it said 1943. Wow. And, and then we were given the wrong frequencies to the radios. Um, and also, they told us that the weather that we we're going to have was going to be like a, an English spring. 
when actually it was the coldest weather that Iraq had ever had on record. Now, mm-hmm. I realise, Jack, that we can't control the weather. <laughs> Fine, that's it. But but surely we have the you know the the information to know what weather's coming along. And besides, Jack, is that is because we wasn't prepared with the equipment that was left behind or, or, or we didn't have enough of, especially cold weather equipment, is that because it was the coldest winter that Iraq had ever had, and it snowed many nights when I was on the ground, is that there were guys from my regiment actually died, okay, of hypothermia, simply because the weather in Iraq was far too cold. And, you know, these things, when you think about it, shouldn't happen. Um, there was mistakes that did happen, and I pointed them out in the book. And, uh, and, and what it was when I saw your guys, the SEALs, I thought, right, those guys are bound to have the kids. <laughs> and uh, uh, I knew that we, we had a massive shortage of it. And, and uh, what I used to do, I used to see your guys over on the far side of the, um, of the uh, airfield. We were all living out in the open. And I used to see the only thing I can describe is doom buggies, if I'm saying the yep. right thing. And yep. these things were four. I haven't seen anything like it before. They were just fantastic. And in the morning, these four doom buggies, desert buggies, if you like, would start up. Your guys would start them up and rev them up and take them out for a short spin. These <laughs> things just looked amazing. They had, they had like a, yeah. uh, you had a driver, you had a guy at side of him. They had like mm-hmm. a, a mounted machine gun. Yeah. You had a guy that sat up behind him on a higher light turret. Uh, at that at that time, it was a it was a, an M60 okay. machine gun that mm-hmm. was on the back. So you had four of these. They just looked amazing, and your guys would take them for a spin out in the <laughs> desert, like you know. So I used to come over and uh, kind of slowly edge my way in for a coffee or a drink yeah. of chocolate and stuff like that, and start to ask for equipment. As I said, I got to know your guys. Your guys were great. Yeah, Jack, we come through the same sausage factory. You know, we have the same mindset. And I think it's all to do with that same type of selection process Mm -hmm. that I talked about earlier, is that when you are put under a certain stress, okay, is that a certain individual arises and hence a certain individual then becomes a SEAL, becomes an SES guy, becomes special forces. And it's all, all to do with the type of training. And that type of trainer will bring out that type of guy. And it's the type of guy that wants to be there. As I said, it's no use sticking your chest out and saying, I'm this and that and the other. There's a job to be done. We don't whinge. We don't whine. We don't bellyache. And at this stage, I knew I was going out on the ground. I went over to your guys. I just tell them straight, this is what I need. You guys are okay, buddy. And um, they gave us equipment that, that we, we dearly needed. And uh, I can always thank them for that. And, and just to add to that, uh, Jack, I've, I've worked with your guys many a time when I've come over to the States and we've done stuff together. And, and your guys have always been good to me. I've got lots of stories that um, <laughs> I can tell you at another time. Yeah. But, uh, but, you know, so all I can remember is just laughing a lot, having fun. But before that, we get down and do some good old-fashioned hard work. And then, uh, and then we go out and enjoy ourselves. What about that? That's it. That's it. Those vehicles you're talking about, I think they were called desert patrol vehicles, DPVs. And, um, yeah. they, uh, they were decommissioned at some point in the late nineties, I think. Um, yeah. and I think they were too expensive and, uh, they just weren't 
things, technology had outpaced them a little bit. Um, yeah. But then Afghanistan kicked off and no one knew how to use these things. So they went and found them. I think this is right. They went and found yeah. them somewhere. I think they were at Camp Pendleton in a storage facility, but no one really knew how yeah. to do anything. So they brought these guys back that we called <laughs> the space cowboys. So the guys that had used yeah. them back in the, in the, uh, in the eighties and in the early nineties. Uh, so they brought these older guys back in and they, cause the space cowboys <laughs> was that movie with like, Clint Eastwood and all those guys. And um, I remember. And so, yeah, I remember. So, so they brought these yeah. older guys back and it ended up, they didn't really, you know, work that well in Afghanistan. Uh, we needed something with some, some armor or we needed some, you know, some Hilux trucks or something that would blend in a little more, yeah. some things with armor yeah. eventually and, and all that sort yeah. of a thing. But, uh, but we did bring the space cowboys back together there. Uh, in well, the I'll tell you something, <laughs> they were fantastic. I mean, they had stingers strapped to the side mm-hmm. of them. They had weapon systems all over <laughs> them. Cam Nets, they had the big fat tires. These things could move. I mean, yeah, wow, they're, they're, they're a good they're, recruiting tool as well. They yeah, got a lot of people yeah. to join the SEAL teams, I think, because they look, yeah, they did look pretty right, sweet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know something, Jack? I remember at that time, the equipment as well. At that time, I don't know whether you can remember, the Dana boots and the mm-hmm. Matterhorn boots were mm-hmm. just coming out. I think people still use them today. Your guys had them at the time. And I remember looking at them and thinking, wow, what are them like? And I remember asking your guys, as soon as I got back to UK, I ordered a pair of, uh, I think it was Dana boots first, you know, and then eventually the regiment started to get the Matterhorn boots, you know, and, uh, but yeah, and your guys had the Gore-Tex and stuff like that. (laughs) Main thing is, the main thing is your guys thought of nothing of helping us out. Your guys were fantastic, which was brilliant, mate. Brilliant. Love to hear that. And then did you guys have, uh, did everybody in the regiment have cold, some sort of cold weather training or was that only for like mountain troop type guys or people that had just had, had cycled through there? So did everyone in Bravo three zero have some sort of cold weather training or did some guys not have any at all? Uh, no, none of us had any cold weather training at all. I, wow. I suppose that the only way to answer that is that we, as we soldiers, we, we're always doing soldier training. And a lot of that incorporates going to, you know, such mm. countries, you know, cold weather countries and doing certain packages that incorporates cold weather training, you know, mm. sub-zero temperatures, uh, living outside, you know, and, and the likes is generally, you know, in, in Norway, Norway is a, is a country, for example, where the Marines are always going and we mm. do lots of kind of Norway training, but because this was rushed and what have you, the main thing was is that there was no cold weather clothing. In fact, in the book, I tell a story is that our RSM, our regimental sergeant major, realized that for the the three squadrons, the two squadrons A and D that were fighting on up going through the desert to uh, Baghdad, and then our squadron, the B squadron, the three squadrons didn't have any cold weather equipment at all. So what he did, he actually went to the markets in Al Jouf, okay, in Saudi Arabia, bought a load of the Arab coats, the big thick coats that you, mm-hmm. that you can see, actually got them on the helicopters and flew them out as a resupply to A and D squadron when resupplies called for it, and actually put and, and sent these coats out to the guys. Uh, when we was out on the ground, we didn't have any of that simply because we were working independently as well from the squadrons. Um, so yes, um, the eventually got the cold weather gear, but <laughs> after not for some guys, you know, it's, it, and it you, is you had it after, it didn't you? When you got it back, someone doesn't someone give you like, here's your resupply, <laughs> yeah, but you're already yeah, back. What happened was we yeah. were hoping um, the, in, in the book, there's a story where our patrol was supposed to meet up with one of the squadrons. So what they did, 
they had a package of mine saying, does Powell's cold weather gear? Uh-huh. But obviously, I never got it in time. So one of the guys said to me afterwards, he says, thank you very much for that cold weather gear. He says, that really come in handy. Like, you know. That saved so me. We're, um, uh, better late than never, I suppose. And I think yeah. like this, at least at least the guys managed to use it, even though it wasn't me, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. Oh, man, it's such yeah. an amazing thing to read that uh, you're using Second World War era clothing uh, when there had been a couple yeah. advancements since uh, since that time. Um, so you went yes. in there first uh, thinking you're going to be replacements for those that are, are wounded or killed. And when do you find out that, hey, you're going to have a new mission and this new mission is going to be going after scuds? And then I think they throw another one on you last minute about cutting some cables. Um, but your main mission there is to go after the scuds because the worry is that uh, Saddam Hussein is going to launch those things. Oh, well, he did launch a few, but launch more into Israel and draw them into the conflict. Uh, when do you get that that mission? Um, is it when you're on the ground already in, in Saudi Arabia? Uh, yes, correct. Uh, what it was is that the two squadrons that have already said, They'd got their mission, and their mission was to cross over the Saudi border into Iraq and fight our way independently up to Baghdad. We were there just as two ECRs, battle casualty replacements. Mm-hmm. But as you said, what started happening, the leader of Iraq at that time was very clever, Saddam Hussein. He started firing mobile Scud rockets from various areas within the Iraqi desert onto Israel, knowing that Israel would come into the war and then that would become a larger conflict with undoubtedly a larger loss of life. As you can appreciate, is that if Israel had come into the war, neighboring countries, um, and Arab countries would side with Iraq and fight against Israel. So that was the first one. The second big one was that Iraq had used chemical weapons in the past when fighting Iran on its border in the 80s. It had fought Iran for about eight years with a loss of a quarter million troops. It had used chemical weapons. In fact, it used chemical weapons on his own people, the Kurds. So we know that Israel coming into the war, and then it was only a matter of time that chemical weapons would be used. We knew that all of the Middle East would destabilize. And it would be a massive conflict. In fact, our commanders, Jack, was using terminology of second world, sorry, third world war terminology. Now, that sounds very, very dramatic or satire and talking about this. But when I was out in Saudi Arabia, where we were seeing hundreds of thousands of troops forming up in Saudi Arabia, ready to cross over the border into Iraq and into Kuwait, and then throwing in the the oil uh, um, the, the complexity, if you like, destabilizing the Middle East, the oil itself, you could see how Third World War would come about. So they said, tell you what, we'll have three um, patrols that will be flown hundreds of miles behind enemy lines. We will go looking for these mobile Scud rockets. And they thought that these mobile Scud rockets would be traveling up and down MSR's main supply routes from uh, Baghdad going out into the mm-hmm. desert. These mobile Scud rockets would stop, uh, erect, fire these rockets. It would take minutes to reach Israel, and then they would go and hide again. We were supposed to go out and find these rockets, locate them, 
send back their coordinates, and then bring in airstrikes to eliminate them. As you could see, it was almost an impossible task. But when they were talking about this Third World War coming about, we knew that it was very, very serious. And because of that, the three Bravo patrols, Bravo 1, Bravo 2, Bravo 3, with eight men in each patrol, it was a tongue-in-cheek kind of phrase, but we, there was phrases going about like suicide missions. Now, we know, even though it was tongue-in-cheek and we used to laugh about it, we knew it was very, very serious. And we know that if Israel was coming into the war, chemical weapons being fired, we knew that this was going to be a tinderbox. Anyhow, they decided on three patrols to go out, to fly out, and then we go into detail of the problems that we had in SES Bravo uh, 3.0. I think most people can remember the book that came out by my colleague, Andy McNabb, and his book was Bravo 2.0, and it talked mm-hmm. about the problems that they had. And I believe they've had Chris Ryan, Okay, yep. a, a friend of mine. Both of them on. Yep. Uh, yeah, a, a good guy. And now he was in Bravo 2-0, and he talks about how he escaped to Syria. We had Bravo 1-0 and the problems that they had, and then the book is Bravo 3-0 and the problems that we had. Bear in mind, we all worked independently. And um, so, yes, is that the three patrols came about to specifically stop or, or find and locate these mobile Scud rockets trying to prevent <laughs> World War III. Yeah. And um, so we, the pressure was on, if you like. And uh, the story goes on about how uh, we tried to prevent that and the problems that we had. Yeah, I've had both uh, Chris Ryan and Andy McNabb on the on the podcast, and it was an, an honor to have those guys on because, of course, I devoured those books when they came out. I still have my original notes uh, in them about gear, about taking nods with you, about uh, wow. making sure you have your suppressor on. Was it, even if it's like, yeah. hey, afternoon, get that thing on there. Um, <laughs> like it's just there's so many lessons from uh, from those guys, um, and it was, yeah. it was it was incredible to to be able to talk to them as it is to, to talk to you and talk about something that I didn't even know know happened out there. Um, with yeah. you guys. And you guys were the only patrol of the three that decided to take vehicles. Uh, and you had a little bit of debate about that because they weren't the most, uh, I guess, formidable vehicles that you could have uh, could have had. They were, but you decided to go with them because, as you say in the book, and for those who have read the uh, the other accounts, there was a lot of gear you had to carry um, to do to do this mission. And uh, and doing that from a vehicle seems to be the way to go. It allows you to get out of there, allows you to carry all this gear uh, and accomplish this mission. But you're the, and you actually bring it up with a couple of the guys in the other uh, Bravo patrols. Hey, why aren't you guys taking these vehicles? Um, and you're the only ones that uh, decided uh, to do that. So what was your, what was your thinking on taking the vehicles versus, versus not? Yes. Um, the intelligence at the beginning is that, as you know, Jack, you, you can only go on the information that you have at that time. Okay, afterwards, if you find the information's wrong, well, then you still have to go with it. Now, initially, the, when it was, it was said that the mission could be achieved on foot or it could be achieved on using vehicles. Now, our mission was supposed to be covert. It wasn't overt. We were supposed to go in there secretly, uh, observe these Scud missiles, send back the coordinates to bring in airstrikes to eliminate once we'd done our mission, we were to get out quietly, okay, not to uh, go offensive, not to let them know that there were special forces hundreds of miles 
behind enemy lines. Okay, so that initially, uh, what was was our mission was was to find, but to do it covertly. Now, the intelligence told us quite a few things that were wrong. Firstly, it was saying that it was a very, very soft desert, you know, undulating ground, very easy to put in an OP, an observation post, to bury yourself into ground and to be able to observe. Okay, well, that was wrong. When we got on the ground, it was flat as a pancake. The ground was like concrete. There was no undulating ground. So you can be seen for miles and miles and miles. So, um, and plus the choice is down to you, Jack, is that the, the, the head shed will give you a mission, but you decide how it's to be carried out. And on the information you get, the intelligence, then you plan your mission. Two patrols, Bravo 1 and Bravo 20, decided that they could achieve their mission on foot by getting dropped off by helicopter, then walking in and building an observation port. In other words, digging an hole in the ground and observing. Once they've done their task, then come out after two or three weeks or so. We decided to take vehicles. Okay, the vehicles weren't that good, but we just decided and said, well, do you know something? We will take vehicles because we feel we can do uh, this job just as good with vehicles. We also had in mind that we could also be active if we needed to be, okay, and, you know, be offensive if, if it did come to that. Mm-hmm. And we also had wheels we, we could get out of trouble as well. That was our thinking. But remember, it is left to the patrol on the ground, not just down to the commander. The whole patrol mm-hmm. decides what they want to do. So Bravo 3-0, we decided vehicles. Bravo 1 and 2 decided to go in on foot. And I remember just before we left, we, I remember having a chat with Chris Ryan and we sat down and we were having a cup of tea on the ground. And I said, um, look, your guys are carrying all this equipment in and, you know, don't you think that you'll be better taking vehicles? But then Chris would say to me and going, have you seen the state of your vehicles? You know, you're taking those in. You've got no weapon mounts. You've got none of this, none of that. The other, you have more chance of breaking down the enemy's here. And do you know yeah. so what we were both putting doubt in each other's minds, yeah. you know? But the, the the thing was is that we had decided that, that we'd already decided what we were going to do. Now, once we got on the ground, Jack, bear in mind we were flown in by two Chinook helicopters. Mm-hmm. Each patrol was dropped off. Once we got on the ground, we knew the intelligence was wrong. Yeah. We knew that if we were having problems in vehicles, we knew that the guys that were on foot were definitely going to have problems. Now, we couldn't communicate with each other, Jack. Firstly, we were working independently, so we were quite a few miles away from each other. But the radios we had, we had the wrong frequencies, so we couldn't communicate with each other. Now, we didn't know that until we got on the ground. We didn't know that the ground was concrete until we got on the ground. We didn't know that there wasn't no undulating ground. We didn't know it was flat as a pancake. We didn't know it was going to be that cold. Yeah. So all of a sudden, when we got on the ground, things weren't as what we'd been told. But as usual, you have to just get on with it. It's no use whinging and whining and belly aching because guess what? You have a job to be done. And you're a soldier and you've just got to, you've been dealt with the cards that you've been dealt with and you've just got to get on with it and get the job done. As you know, Jack. Just like in life, just like in life, <laughs> you're going to get dealt some cards uh, and you got to play those yeah. cards the best you, you can. Um, yeah. I'm going to read this here. 
quickly here because you're out there, um, the radios, you're having trouble with the radios, you have the wrong frequencies, and you discuss that later in the, the debrief. There's a lot of lessons lessons learned here. You're worried about the other patrols because you see the ground and you're worried that, oh my gosh, these guys are on foot with all that weight. Um, if they get in trouble, they're in serious trouble. They don't have too many, yeah. too many options. Yeah. Um, but you do manage to get a radio um, uh, transmission in at some point where you can kind of figure out a little bit about what's going on. Um, and, uh, you say yeah. this, we gathered aghast as he delivered to us the long and short of it. We had one patrol, Andy McNabb's Bravo two zero compromised. And all eight men were reported MIA missing in action. As for the second patrol, Patrick Johnson's Bravo one zero, the message regarding that lot was seriously garbled, but from what we could make of it, it seemed as if they might not even have deployed. In truth, the Bravo one zero guys had walked down the open ramp of the Chinook, surveyed the terrain and decided that no way were they heading into all that. They got the pilot to fly them to an alternate DZ, but when they found it no better off than the first, they had made the decision to return to base. Doubtless the call made by Patrick Johnson and his patrol had been the right one, but it had taken real balls. Had Bravo 10 deployed on foot, it stood to reason they would have suffered the same fate at McNabb's lot, which would mean we'd have 16 men missing in action right now. Patrick Johnson's action had very likely saved all on his patrol, but for sure there would be those who would slang him for making a bad call or for cowardice. In due course, I'd make a mental note to myself. I would seek out Pat just as soon as I was able to and tell him exactly what I thought, that he had done entirely the right thing. In fact, it was the kind of decision that a medal should be given for. It must have taken incredible bravery, self-possession, and presence of mind to make such a call. That was a really cool thing for you to, to write. Um, and I remember thinking about that as I read the, uh, the other two accounts back, uh, in the, in the 90s, thinking about, about how hard it would be to make that call, especially when maybe you're going into, to combat for the first time in a while. And, uh, in the SEAL teams, that would have been us from Vietnam up until September 11th, 2001, because we had those flashpoints in Grenada and Panama and Mogadishu, but, uh, but we hadn't been in sustained combat operations. So, so I did think about that, about being a leader and, uh, having the presence of mind to make the right call, uh, in those, under that kind of pressure. So I thought it said a, a lot about you, um, that you, you thought that through and you know, you were on the ground and you know, Hey, if we were on foot, the right call is, Hey, let's check another place and let's try another alternate, uh, landing zone. And then, uh, okay, well, it's about the same. This is not what we were brief. We're not prepared for this. I'm leading my men to their death. We're not going to accomplish the mission. Time to go back, reevaluate, and figure this out another way. So I thought it was really, really uh, uh, said a lot about you that you wrote that. Well, that's good at you, Jack. I mean, when we were on the ground, we wasn't to know that the commander of Bravo One Zero had actually done that. We didn't know that until we got back. And also, even with Bravo Two Zero, because of the messages that we were getting, they were garbled. Mm. Um, it wasn't clear, but we knew that Bravo Two Zero was in trouble. Now we was having problems as well. We was having some real problems, and we had vehicles, so we knew that those two patrols. Uh, bear in mind, we didn't know Bravo One Zero had, had, had gone back, but we knew that they were having problems, and 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 it felt bad for us because that we couldn't do anything about it. We, we, we didn't know where they were. But this particular evening wasn't, wasn't good. We had these garbled messages. It was snowing on the ground. We knew we were going down with cold exposure. We were all feeling it. We were, we, we were, we were close to, you know, we were close to death, some of us, you know. And um, we was huddled, trying to keep each other warm. And we knew some people had died. 
And and that made us feel really, really bad knowing that our friends, uh, you know, had, had committed the ultimate sacrifice, if you like. It was only when we got back that we had a debrief. And yes, I saw the commander of Bravo One Zero. And, and yes, that took a lot of guts from him to do that because, um, you know, everyone knew uh, that when you go out to do a mission, you, you, you take on that mission no matter what. Yeah. And it takes guts for him to say, well, I'm gone. I've got off the aircraft. This is not what I have been briefed. This is not the intelligence that I've been told. And it's my responsibility to think of these guys' lives. Well, in actual fact, the whole patrol got together and they, they decided, even though it's the commander that makes the ultimate decision, everybody makes it together. And he actually, because of his brave decision, he saved the whole lives of that patrol. And, uh, and yes, it's, uh, that takes quite a bit of guts to get off the aircraft, have a look around, get back on again, have a chat with a pilot and say, can you take me to another location? That's exactly what he did in Iraq at night. Took him to another location. They got off the aircraft again, had a look around, said, no, this intelligence is not fitting to the ground. Get back on the aircraft and then go back. That is a gutsy move. And uh, um, I've actually been in touch with the guy just recently. What was good of him, the the commander of Bravo One Zero, he actually got in touch about the book and he actually said something like you. He said, uh, thanks very much, Des, for uh, bringing that to light. Um, no one else has said that. And, uh, oh. and, and in a way, it's, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's gratifying. Um, not that I plan to do any of that. Yeah. I was just telling the story. The story is the story, Jack. You can't change the story. It is what it is. Yes, I give my opinion and I say what I think is my opinion. But sir, um, I, he, let me go on record saying that I think he made the correct decision. It's as simple as that. A gutsy move, a hard move, a hard decision. He made the right one. And then you guys out there, you're making some decisions as well because you're in this uh, this terrain that's not exactly as brief. You're in vehicles that aren't necessarily uh, top of the line. Uh, you're in clothing that is not built for that environment. Um, so you're dealing with that. You're dealing with uh, uncertainty around these Scud missile launchers. And if they're uh, camouflaged as other things, uh, the people manning them dressed in civilian clothes, who are these people? You you start to move about and uh, try to get in locations and send back the positions of these of these Scuds. And uh, eventually you decide to go on one of these MSRs, I, th- I believe. And then here comes Iraqis. And you guys are like, such quick thing. It was such an, it's one of my favorite chapters in the book where you talk about you guys and you're trying to figure out, you're like, all right, we're getting ready to go here. And somebody on the patrol just starts waving, you know, just starts waving to the other, to these Iraqis that are coming the other direction, I believe. And, uh, the Iraqis put the AK outside the window and first you think they're about to shoot, but then it's kind of more of the, yeah, here we go. And you guys pass each other just waving. And it's, uh, it's that quick thinking, that adaptability that, uh, that, that makes you guys what you are. It was just a fantastic story. Uh, yeah, it's, um, what we realized, uh, Jack, that after the while, because it was so flat, because you could see for miles and miles, we were actually bumping into all sorts of people, you know, the, the goat herders, you know, it's, it's their backyard, it's, it's where they live. And we could see vehicles from a distance. And the, the good thing about the Iraqi army is that there's a lot of different type of vehicles. There's a lot of uniforms. 
There's a lot of different type of dress. Mm. So what we started to do is what we just call is hiding in plain sight. And we know that David Sterling used to do this as well back in when he was fighting in North Africa against Rommel in, in the vehicles again. So what we did, we'd be wearing shamans across our face. And this particular story that you've just said, there were many others, incidents, very, very similar. But we could see dust coming towards us and we knew it was a convoy. And we thought, oh, my God, you know, this is it. Mm-hmm. This is it. And, and we'd been seen, we know we had, and we're traveling towards them, and now they're coming towards us. And as you got closer, I could make out that there was probably a couple of land cruisers, and there was a, another heavy vehicle. And there must have been about a handful of vehicles, or maybe more, but they were traveling at some speed. And I could see there was quite a lot of guys on these vehicles, open tops, shemags, all different, and, you know, and, and weaponry. And we just, and of course, we're starting to get ready now. I was preparing my weapon and magazines, you know, what it's like, Jack, you know, and, and, you know, jockeying for position, getting the right angle and what have you. And they're coming towards us and they're on our right-hand side. And as we're getting closer and closer and closer, all of a sudden, we were two vehicles. All of a sudden, the commander in the front vehicle just put his hand up and just waved to him sort of thing. And there was this long pause, you know, as they kind of passing us. All of a sudden, the AKs went up and he started cheering and shouting, <laughs> and we're kind of just waving to him. And and we and that's the best we could do because we thought, well, you know, if we're going to have a contact, we're going to hit some hard. But then we're on the run. You know, that wasn't our mission. Our mission was to stay covert mm. and to find these mobile Scud missiles to stop World War Three. And this was always in the back of our minds. If we went overt or we started to have a heavy contact, is that people would know then who we were and we haven't achieved our mission. So we've right. achieved nothing at all. We would then be on the run. Yeah. This happened many, many times. We bumped into many, many people. And all we did, we just kept our shamags on. We just waved to them. We kept our weapons out of the way sort of thing. Our vehicles didn't look battle ready and that was one of the advantages because the land rovers that are battle ready as you know have vehicle mounts on them have heavy mm-hmm. weapons uh, you, they look battle ready they look intimidating our vi- vehicles were two land rovers a 110 long wheelbase one and a 90 which we called a dinky so we call them a pinky and a dinky in the book <laughs> I was in the smaller one. So they didn't look intimidating. They didn't have any battle mounts on. So we didn't look aggressive. We looked like we belonged in the desert. And after about a couple of weeks in the desert, you will look like you belong there. (laughs) So whenever we come across anyone, we just kept going slowly at 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 a fairly slow speed and just waved to people, just waved and, you know, like that. And, that, you know, that lasted quite a long time, you know, yes. until other things started to happen that we've written about in the book. Oh, man. And then uh, when it was it like to find the first, uh, the first launcher, the first Scud, what did you guys, did you, was there uncertainty about what it actually was? Or because before that you had used, you'd only seen them in, uh, in photographs and, and that sort of a thing. And what, um, so what was that like? Yes, agreed. Uh, one evening we could hear, all this commotion and, and we was in a vehicle and we were, we were hope, hoping we was in an LUP, you know, just to lie up for the evening, you know, it's, you know, it's early hours in the morning and we created all this commotion, you know, you know, a few hundred meters away. So a couple of us went forward and just above this mound, 
we could see there were loads of vehicles. There was a hiver activity. And the way I can describe it, Jack, and I think I've described it in the book like this, it reminded me of, of uh, a motorway or freeway maintenance. Have you seen it at night mm. when you go down the freeway or the motorway and you have all these lights and a hiver activity and people working and whatever? Wow. That's just what it reminded me of. Wow. And, and me and my colleague, we were looking and trying to observe and we were trying to look and see and is, is that a scud is that this is who's that and, and what i mean, and we'd heard what did you know as you said all we'd seen was pictures at that stage and and we were almost certain that you know this was a, a mobile scud unit if you like because mm-hmm. we heard that they used to move around and had troops which would protect them and they used to come to a certain area elevate fire the rocket minutes to reach its target off they would go so we had a couple of things in mind. We we came back, we got together, we had a quick chin wagon, and, and there were two things we could, we, because our messages weren't getting through or we wasn't sure whether they were getting through or not. Mm-hmm. We said, well, what we could do, we could go offensive. We could, even though we could see we're outnumbered, but we had the, we had surprise on our side. So we knew we'd give a good account to ourselves. And we could possibly knock out one scud unit, if you like. But we knew that that wouldn't achieve very much because then we would hit that scud unit and then we'd be on the run and we'd have to probably head, head his way back to Saudi Arabia or, or if we're in the wrong position, head towards Syria. And we knew that wasn't our mission. Our mission was to stay covert, was to find as many scud missiles as we could. So we did toy with that idea about going overt. Mm. And, and and being offensive. And and in a way, that kind of made you feel good because it right. kind of made you feel that, right, we're doing something. Yes, we, we, we are attacking the enemy. We, 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 are, we are getting a result because at this moment in time, we were sending messages. Yes, we were seeing a lot of activity. And we were sending messages and we were sending what we thought we were seeing possible mobile squad units mm. moving up and down the MSRs. This was the one that we'd seen or caught with its pants down, so to speak, mm. you know, and we thought, right. But we decided to pull away at the first opportunity, set up comms, send the message mm-hmm. of its coordinates. Again, we wasn't sure whether the uh, messages were going through, but at least we were going through and sending them through as if they were being right. received. Because as you know, you can send a message and it can be received without the acknowledgement. And um, in the book, I talk about the ionosphere. As you know, the ionosphere plays a lot of tricks on you sometimes. Mm. And and just for your listeners out there, we wasn't on comms where we could talk to each other. When you're on comms and you speak, you can get picked up by your signals and the enemy knows where you're at. We have certain radio sets which sends frequencies, short bursts, where you can't be pinpointed if you like. Mm. So these messages have to be sent at certain times and at certain frequencies, if you like. So that is what we did. We pulled away, sent the coordinates and, uh, um, and bring in uh, the coordinates of an airstrike of that particular unit. Wow. And how long were you guys out there in total? Approximately two weeks. Okay. And um, it, it sent longer, as you know, especially when um, 
the, the, the hardest thing out there was the actual cold itself. Because we wasn't prepared for the cold, it was sub-zero temperatures. It was snowing every night. It was freezing, freezing cold. We wasn't prepared for that. And, and as I've already said, there were guys that actually died with hypothermia, you know, with, with cold exposure. That's how cold it was. And, and, and you know something, Jack, is, you know, some people said, well, why didn't you stop the mission and, 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 and kind of uh, abort, if you like? Well, the answer to that is, is one evening we, we could see Baghdad. We were close enough to Baghdad to see it getting bombed one evening. In fact, it was getting attacked most evenings. Mm. And this particular evening, we were sat in our, our vehicles and we could see Baghdad taking a hell of a pounding, a real pounding. And we could see aircraft coming in, all the flashes of aircraft, and we could see how Baghdad, how it was responding to that. And, you know, so we must have sat there for an hour, two hours, just watching this happen. And nobody said anything. It was only till the next night that we had a chinwag and said, look, we all agreed that we've got to do the best we possibly can. Stay covert try and get as many locations of these mobile scud uh, rockets that we'd seen or possibly seen or and also other locations that we've seen of of that could be potential uh, enemy and and we said if we don't do the best we possibly can we know that what we've seen of Baghdad would be magnified 10 times we knew that if Israel come in and also uh, uh, chemical weapons were to be used. We knew that hundreds of thousands of lives were going to be lost. And you just felt that if we could do our bit as much as we possibly could, it's better to have tried and failed than not to have tried at all. We didn't want to abort the mission. We wanted to do the best we possibly could. And I think it's things like that that you see with Baghdad getting bombed. Mm. And we knew that Innocent civilians were getting killed, not intentionally, but mm -hmm. because of the fallout of conflict and what mm -hmm. happens in conflict and war, we knew that it could only get worse. So we, we all agreed. We all said, we're going to do the best we can and stay out here as long as we possibly could. Yeah. And so you're out there, you're finding these scud launchers, you're radioing back coordinates. You don't know if it's getting through or not, but you continue mission. Uh, and then eventually you decide, hey, we've been out here, we're, uh, what is the decision to go? Are you out of fuel, out of water? Um, yeah, did you have a time limit set for, uh, for when, how long you were going to be out there? Uh, and you'd come to the end of that? Or what's the decision to, to now it's time to go back? Yes. Um, initially, is that we were supposed to stay out there for two weeks or longer. And then we were going to have resupplies for us to stay there out longer if we were having success. What went and happened is that one of the vehicles started to have problems. Mm. It started to be coughing and spluttering, and some days it would start up and some days it wouldn't. So we knew that- Was that the 90 or the 110? That was the 110. Oh, man. That was the bigger one. Yeah. And, and there was another thing is that one day, we one early morning, we got compromised. And, and what it was, we had an LUP. So in our minds, we knew that one of the vehicles was playing up. And we knew that even if we got ourselves into some hostility, mm. we knew that one of the vehicles may let us down anyhow. So that was in the back of our mm. minds. We, we thought that if we could stay covert, we had a chance of maybe carrying on. Or we also had the other part of 
where we could link up with the squadrons that were coming up behind us. Remember I said that we had two squadrons that were coming up slowly behind us. We were had flown over or as uh, hundreds of miles closer to Baghdad. They were coming up slowly behind us. That was A&D squadron. So mm. we also knew that we had a possibility of linking up with those, but that was also fraught with danger because of having a blue on blue. You're sometimes term it friendly fire. So yeah. we knew that was difficult as well. And we'd already had problems with aircraft that had mistaken, that had, had tried to bomb us. We'd already had problems with a Chinook coming in and we'd already had lock on as well from a Top Gun aircraft. So we thought to ourselves, let's try and keep covert as long as we could. What went and happened is that one morning, all of a sudden we heard a vehicle. Okay, very early hours in the morning. We'd had an LUP for the night. We had cam nets over the top. And then suddenly we had this vehicle. And one of the guys gave indication that he'd seen this vehicle. And what had happened is then we had stand two. We started to get ready because we thought this is it. You know, yeah. we've been seen. Someone's following us. They're following us up. And now they're coming to attack us in the morning. And what happened was in the distance, we could see a vehicle with had stopped, but we couldn't quite make out what the vehicle was, but we saw a guy that was walking towards us. So we thought, is this a come on? Because this doesn't look right. right. One guy walking to walk, walking directly towards us. And it was it was early hours in the morning, about five o'clock in the morning. It was just becoming daylight. And and so we're in all round defense and we were expecting to get attacked at any time. Mm. And as this guy is getting closer and closer, what we realized is that this guy was a civilian. And his vehicle, we when we looked through the scope, bear in mind it was, I could just make it out, it was a water bowser. And what the Iraqis do is that the civilians have these civilian water bowsers and they go and replenish the troops, okay? And they give them plenty of water and, you know, give them resupplies and what have you. What this civilian had done, this Iraqi guy, He'd seen our vehicles, he'd seen the cam nets mm -hmm. and couldn't quite make us out, but he just thought we were the same troops. Remember what I said, right. hiding in plain sight? Yeah. He's coming over to us to see if we want any water or resupplies. As he got closer, he realized that, hang on, that doesn't look like Iraqi vehicles, <laughs> you know, Iraqi yeah. nets, you know, Iraqi camouflage or whatever. Uh -huh. Suddenly he turned around and started to run. Now we were ready. I remember having a 66 on my shoulder, as some of the other guys yeah. did, and we were ready. And because we, at first, we thought this was a, a genuine come on. We mm -hmm. thought that we're going to, you know, something's going to hit us from the rear here and what have you. And just for a few seconds, we're just going to hit the water bowser and 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 we realized this is a civilian. Yeah. No, he's, he's just walked onto us. It's just coincidence yeah. that he's bumped into us in the desert. Um, our look has run out. Uh, hiding in plain sight has stopped. And and we said, no, you know, civilians, no, we don't do it. That's, that's not our style. So we knew now that we're on the run. We've been compromised. Yep. And he was then going to go and, and say, hey, we've got some, uh, we've got some uh, troops in our back garden mm -hmm. and uh, they're not Iraqi troops. So we started to pack up quick and um, we all said, right, it's, it's been answered for us. The problems were is that we started to have problems with the truck that had had mm. problems all along and it got worse and worse and worse. Oh, and, 
And from then on, we one vehicle was trying to nudge the other to get it started and what have uh-huh. you. And we knew then we were in some real problems. And now we knew we're on the run. So um, we eventually, what, what happened to happen, we, we got out of that situation knowing that we're going to be followed up. Mm-hmm. And the vehicle, the larger one, broke down altogether. So what we had to do is, is chain one. We've got a chain from my vehicle to the larger vehicle, and we towed it. We had to tow it through the desert. Wow. And there, um, there's more stories in, in the book. And, but that, that was really the, um, the, 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 that said, right, we've got to get out of Dodge now. It's, it's time to, to get back. And, and there were two things we were trying to do either get in touch with the squadrons themselves. Again, that fraught with danger of blue on blue, friendly fire very good chance of being shot up by ourselves. Very good chance now that the enemy is following us up now. We're on the run. Mm-hmm. And there's a very good chance we're going to have to stand and fight because one of the vehicles has broken down and it won't be long before the other one. We were low on rations, low on fuel, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So now we realize we're in a world of hurt. And, uh, um, and the story goes on. And you don't know that how, uh, how much of a success that you, you've had until you get back. So you... You make it through the desert, you get back, and is it at this point that you find out what happened to the other Bravo patrols, uh, and then you sit down and have a debrief, and you find out about these radio frequencies you've been given that were the wrong frequencies, um, and you, you find out what happened to the other squadrons. Another a guy was shot in another one of the other squadrons. Um, you find all that out once you're uh, once you're back there and start to and sit down for this debrief. Uh, yes, yeah, we, we we went back initially as we got back. Um, they, they told us quickly that uh, Bravo 1 had come back, but Bravo 20 was on the run. And, and initially they thought everyone had been killed. So as soon as we got back, that's what we were told. And, and they started to say to us that, uh, yes, we've been receiving most of your messages mm-hmm. and we've, we've managed to eliminate uh, most of the SCUD uh, the locations that you've yeah. given us, we've managed, to, we've been successful on, on that side. Your messages were getting through, um, mm. and, but, but they, they couldn't acknowledge these. And we were very, very surprised. Okay. And they were talking about some of the successes that we'd had about mm. they'd hit other uh, military installations as well, that we also located as well as uh, um, Scud rockets or these mobile Scud rockets. So that. We were very, very surprised because we didn't expect that at all. We were expecting to say, no, being a washout, we couldn't get any messages, et cetera, et cetera. But obviously the Bravo 20 patrol, you know, that, that was very sad. And again, we, we, we didn't know the, the outcome of, of what happened. We didn't know that some had been captured and some had been on the run. Also as well, the other two squadrons of A squadron and D squadron, they'd also had problems as well. They'd had quite a few contacts. And at one stage, between the two squadrons and our squadrons, we had approximately 43, 45 guys on the run at one stage, and they didn't know where they were. So, um, so the SES were all over the desert. And, um, and then when it started to come towards the end of the conflict itself, we had a larger debrief. Mm. And then we were told then about uh, the successes that we'd had and the losses that we'd had and the problems that we'd have. And one of the big problems that 
all the squadrons were having this these frequency problems where we'd been given the wrong frequencies. Apparently, mm-hmm. we'd been given the frequencies of Kuwait, okay, instead of the frequencies of Iraq stroke Saudi. And um, the um, people say, how does that equate? And it's like giving the wrong area code. Yeah, It's like me and you talking and we have the wrong area code. Anyhow, um, that was the problems. There was lots of other problems as well. Uh, we've already talked about them. But yes, um, we we were told that Bravo 1-0 had, had, had come back and did the right thing. Bravo 2-0 had been compromised and, and they were on their own. Uh, we didn't realize it, but we were the furthest patrol, okay, as close to Baghdad as any of the coalition forces. We had two squadrons that had crossed over the border that were coming up behind us, and there was no one else on the ground. We didn't know this. So it, when we look back, it was best that we kept as covert as we could. It was best that we kept on sending our messages. It was best that we kept going as long as we possibly could. Um, it was looking back on it. It's um, I don't think anyone would have blamed us if we had a turnaround and said, right, we couldn't achieve our mission, and we have come come back. Um, but. We just felt that that wasn't the thing to do. And that's not me sticking or pushing my chest out. It's it's probably this mindset that we've talked about. You're a soldier. You've been given orders. These orders, you have got to carry them out to the best of your ability. It doesn't matter what information or intelligence you've been given and you find that it's wrong. You've got to get on with the task in hand. As you know, Jack, most of the situations that we are put in are very, very negative situations, and we are expected a positive outcome. This is the job that we do. Mm-hmm. Remember, we choose to be here. We don't have to be here if we don't want to. This is what we want to do. Right. So guess what? When things get difficult, we can't all of a sudden bail out. You know, I said, no, don't want this. You know, we had a job to do when we knew, Jack, that this was serious. As I said, going back to that story when we was watching Baghdad getting bombed, we knew it could only get worse. We knew terminology that we'd heard was Third World War was coming along. Okay. And and we knew uh, more rockets were going to be fired. We knew Israel was coming into the war. We knew chemical weapons were going to be used. And we go, my goodness, we've got to do the best we possibly can. You know, if we just turn around and go, you know, something, this is too hard, this is too cold, you know, we don't like it here. Tell you what, let's turn tail. Mm-hmm. Yes, the vehicles were, were, were breaking down. Yes, um, you know, we were, were, were bumping into people. Yes, things weren't working. But that comes with a territory, Jack. Yeah. Uh, that comes with what we do. And um, you've been there, I've been there, and we, do, we all agreed. If one of us had said, oh, you know, someone not too sure, you know, time to go home. No, we all agreed. We all said, no, we stick it out. And, and remember, we, we thought, well, if it gets that bad, maybe we could run for help to the squadrons, to A squadron or to D squadron who's coming up behind us. And by the way, they are battle ready. They mm-hmm. are prepared. They have got plenty of vehicles and weapons and what have you. So we thought, mm-hmm. well, we could possibly run towards those or we've then got Saudi. Okay, where we've come from. Or we've got Syria as well. Mm-hmm. So we know that we had some get-out clauses, okay, but this particular day, 
and you know our our it being answered for us. But when we got back and we'd had the debrief, yes, it was very very gratifying to think, my goodness, we, we we've done a lot more than we ever expected. And 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 what I did like Jack is that you know we'd done it properly, we'd done it professionally. And, uh, um, and and we'd done it most of the time without knowing what anybody else was doing. We just took mm-hmm. it for granted that everyone was getting on with the same task that we was doing as well. Yeah. You know, we didn't know what anyone else was doing. Okay, we'd, we'd had some garbled messages that maybe some patrols might not have been achieving what they want, but we didn't know for definite. So mm-hmm. what was good for us all is, especially for me, was knowing that we really had, had, had achieved our mission, you know, and, wow. and, and, and probably done far more than, than what we expected, Jack. So, yeah. yes, that was very, very gratifying. Yeah, I mean, you guys were hitting above your weight. And to get back and just to think, if you, if you hadn't completed that mission or you hadn't got radioed back with as many locations as you had for Scud missiles, imagine maybe one, maybe two, maybe three of those, however many that could have changed the, the tide of the war. It could have hit something in Israel that uh, caused Israel to then enter that conflict, which would have spun that thing in a, in a whole different direction. So, um, so you guys have a lot to be, a lot to be proud of. It's a, it's an amazing accomplishment. What you guys did with the wrong quote unquote wrong gear and you made it work. You made the vehicles work. You made that cotton from world war II work and you went out there and you got it done in spite of bad intel radio frequencies that were wrong as well i mean there there are very few other things that could have gone uh wrong like you were put into that position with not the greatest support uh from intel from leadership uh from a whole a whole host of uh of, of areas but you still got it done and that's uh that says a lot yes and 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 by the way the, the commander of um at that time was uh um uh, uh, Schwarzkopf. You know, was was he was he was the main guy and a, a great yeah. commander, General Norman. Was it Norman? Norman Norman. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, he wasn't was a, a fan of special guy. operations at the beginning. No, I was just going to bring that up, Jack. Right at the beginning, you know, he said, "No, um, this is going to be an air war. This is an air war, and we don't need special forces on the ground." He, I think he'd had bad experiences in Vietnam where mm-hmm. special forces had gone out, got themselves in trouble. And then conventional forces had to come and get them out. So no, he wasn't a great lover. And um, it was only until that the, the the scuds were being fired from the desert that our commander said to to, uh, to Norman Schwarzkopf said, um, "Look, we've got SES. SES could do it." And as you know, we were we were trying our hardest to get into the war. Yeah, yeah. And um, luckily, we had a commander called Peter de la Billier. Okay, who'd been, and he was the commander of the British forces. Luckily, he'd been a commander of the SAS. Mm. So he was always with Schwarzkopf, and he kept saying, look, the SAS are ready, the SAS are ready. It was only when it turned, when the Scuds started to be fired onto Mm. Israel, bear in mind, A and D squadron already got their task. They'd already got their missions. So it left B squadron, and they said, right, Let's get three patrols out into the desert looking for these mobile scuds because we don't want Israel to come into the war. And by the way, I heard that they had a battalion of paratroopers ready from Israel to parachute into Baghdad at any time. And I uh, heard 
through intelligence that our government was uh, briefing their government on a daily basis, saying what was happening regarding the Scud missiles. Because every wow. single day they were wanting to come into the war. And I get it. I understand it. You know, some Scuds, I, I believe, had, had landed on the capital and had killed people. Uh, but our government, and I know your government, was saying to the government of Israel, saying, look, if you're coming to the war, it will change the dynamics completely. All of the Middle East will mm -hmm. unite against you, and that will change everything. And, and, and luckily, we managed to persuade them to stay out of the war because, yes, it, it would have changed. And, and we knew this. As I said, it sounds very dramatic when you talk about World War Three. But when you was there, uh, Jack, yes, you could really feel the tension, you know. And um, it's uh, and, and again, the SEALs, you had your mission. And I know there were other American SFs out there. You had your missions. You had your stories as well. So we all had tasks to do. And um, some stories have been told and some won't be. Um, I've been lucky regarding this story, as I said at the beginning, is that uh, last year um, I, I'd been given permission uh, to write this story and, and, and bring the story out. And I've really been pleased, Jack, the response that we've had mm -hmm. from it. It's been very, very positive. And, um, and it was particularly uh, gratifying that uh, we brought it out, as I said earlier, on yeah. the birthday of the regiment, the 80 years of, of the regiment itself, and 30 years of the Gulf War itself. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, uh, the, the Gulf always seems to be coming back. I, I always mm. hearing questions about the Gulf War and mm. what happened there and what happened there and et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a modern war, isn't it? It's, a lot of people can remember it. You know, it's only 30 years ago sort of thing. And uh, so there's always been a lot of questions and there's always been talk about the Bravo patrols. Initially, mm -hmm. they only thought there was one Bravo patrol. Right. And now people know that there was three Bravo patrols. And um, so, yes, it's been good for me to be able to to bring the story out to the to yeah. the wider public, so to speak. Yeah, no, I think these uh, these stories are so important because uh, today, more than any probably more than any other time in uh, the history of both our nations, uh, that, that next generation needs people to look up to. They need heroes yes. for lack of a better term, uh, cause they're yes. inundated so much with all the social media and all the negativity and all the celebrity and all that sort of a thing that, uh, that people really need heroes and books like this, like Bravo three zero, uh, that, that talks about this patrol. It gives kids this next generation, those, uh, specifically let's say kids, Eight, sixth grade through high school into college, just after college that are looking for that next thing and wondering what they're going to do. Or some, maybe you're like, I want to serve my country. And now you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to this regiment, right? I'm going to the SAS. Um, so that's why these are so important. Books inspired me growing up. Um, I can't imagine uh, growing up without some of those stories, typically those Vietnam stories at the time, um, but they're inspiring. You're going to inspire a whole other generation with this. And I want to read one other thing from here. Um, and uh, this once again, says a lot, a lot about you here. And it says, uh, sometime after the Gulf war, several, several accounts of indi individual SAS missions were published, including Andy McNabb's book, Bravo two zero and Chris Ryan's the one that got away. There've been various criticisms leveled at these and other authors accusing them of ogre-egging the pudding in terms of the dramatics and heroics that took place on the ground in Iraq, especially with relation to Bravo 20 patrol. Chris and Andy were and remain good friends of mine. And as far as I'm concerned, our patrol could so very easily have suffered the same dire fate as theirs. 
Thankfully, I wasn't on the Bravo 20 patrol as it was finally constituted, so I avoided getting wounded, killed, or captured. As I wasn't part of their patrol, I don't feel qualified to comment on the authenticity of their accounts, but knowing both men as I do, they have my respect. I salute each of them for getting out alive, as I do all of the Bravo 20 patrol members who survived the terrible trials and tribulations of Iraq. Had the proper SAS warfighting vehicles been provided at the time, then I am certain that McNabb's patrol would have grabbed them with both hands and deployed with guns and wheels. I am also certain that Patrick Johnson's patrol would have gone in driving vehicles and that when they drove down the Chinook's open ramp, they would have surmised that even though the terrain was horrendous, at least with war wagons, they could run and fight their way to the border if need be. That is the real failure in terms of the fate that befell the Bravo 20 patrol and the Bravo 10 patrol for that matter. Leveling criticism at those men who, in spite of everything, did their very best to achieve their missions is unacceptable in my view, and especially when the Bravo 20's patrol dire fate and the fate that befell Bravo 10 owed much of their failure to equip, to equip those fighting men properly for war. As I've said, all the men of both patrols have my respect. That says a lot about you right there. And I get a lot of questions about the... Uh, the the Bin Laden raid and the books that have been written about that or the accounts that have been written, uh, written about that. And, you know, for me, uh, anytime someone writes about their experience in war, it is from their perspective and that's how, how it should be viewed. Uh, and I respect every single one of the guys that got on those helicopters in Afghanistan and flew into Pakistan that night in May to get Osama Bin Laden. Um, they, every one of those guys has my utmost respect. So, uh, so for you to, to do that, that, uh, I think that says a lot about, about your character as well. Well, that's very good of you, Jack. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, just going further with that is, yeah, everybody can criticize anybody. And I always say to people is that, firstly, I know all of these guys. You know, we, we were all in the same squadron together, you know, and in some case, the same troops. You know, me and Andy McNabb, we was in air troop together. You know, uh, Chris Ryan, he's in mountain troop. But we come under the umbrella of B squadron. We was in the same squadron. So on all of these guys... And yes, it's very easy to point the finger saying, well, they should have done this, or they shouldn't have done that, or they could have done this, or they could have done that. Oh, well, guess what? You weren't there. And, uh, um, and I always think like this is that whether you do things right or whether you do things wrong, you do it with the best intention. You do the very, very best you can in a very, very difficult environment. And I always think of it like this. I always say to people, if a guy is willing to commit the ultimate sacrifice to achieve the actual mission, the task itself, well, that's good enough in my book. Yeah. And I just point out, you know, as you pointed out, is that these guys try their very, very best to um, bring about a successful mission, but they are not here today. And they did their best. So it always needles me a little bit when I hear people, you know, criticize him and them and you know well i would have done it different guess what you didn't and you weren't there so um i always think it like this i've said it earlier on is that we're in a profession that we choose jack both me and you chose this profession mm -hmm. nobody forces so um we know that the missions the jobs the tasks are always going to be difficult always going to be dangerous and again, it's up to us whether we want to do it or not. So it's no use whinging and whining and belly aching, as, it, as I said earlier on. You just get on and you do it with your hand on your heart uh, to the best of your ability. As I said, uh, if you 
these guys committed the ultimate sacrifice and they're not here today. So that's good enough in my book. They tried their very, very best. And yeah. uh, and it's good that, uh, for you to point that out. So it's very good of you, Jack. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And then when you get home, what's different when you guys fly back uh, to the UK? Um, is, is, what is that like? If you get off the plane, you get back to, to your base. Um, are things different now? I mean, are people talking about it? You have another big debrief maybe back there. Um, what's changed now after these three patrols or after the experience as a whole in, in Iraq in the first Gulf War? What changes when you, when you get home? Uh, yes. Um, I've said it in the book and I'll, I'll just go on about it a, a little bit. It's, when we come out, we, after a, a short period of time, the whole regiment gets together. The, the conflict comes to an end and then we have our own debrief. And as you can imagine, it gets a little bit tense. I've I pointed out in the book that, that what we do. And, and a lot of it is about the lack of equipment and the lack of problems with comms and why this wasn't provided and what happened with the cold weather equipment and what about weapons. And so there's a heated debate. Bear in mind, we're SF community, so we grown-ups, we can say what is on our minds, and it's actually encouraged. So um, it's holding behind closed doors, these, um, and, and, and we say what we have to say, and then people get up and say the reasons where, why, and what for, and that goes as far as the colonel. And the colonel yeah. you know, will say, well, this is the reason we did this, and this is the reason I ordered that, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But then when we get back and we get in, um, you know, as you've just said, we, we we get back to home, if you like, then we go downtown, we go to the pubs, and then there's some chess poking, then, isn't there, you yeah. know, and, uh, and then <laughs> the real debrief. Some, and then there's some private debriefs. But yeah, yeah. Do you know something, Jack? I mean, you know, as I said earlier on, we're, we're men's men. This is what we do. These, it, it's just a fact of life that yeah. we're not always going to get on. We're not always going to make the right decision. This is not a popularity contest. You know, these, these decisions and things that you have to do that are going to upset people. And if then people think that you may have done or said or whatever the wrong thing, well, guess what? You may have to go toe to toe and you may have to um, <laughs> go a little bit further than some chess poking. But yeah. as I've said, you know, we're SF, you know, we're SAS, we SEAL teams, you know, we're men's men, we act like men and, and it's got to be sorted out like men. Uh, but after it's sorted out, that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, you buried a hatchet and you've got to get on with the next task. Um, yeah. So, yes, there is a massive debrief and that's an internal debrief. And then there's a debrief between individuals. Then um, <laughs> It all gets sorted out. Yeah. And by the way, this is the way it should be done. There's no other way to do it. Is it Jack? You know, um, yeah, as I say, we're not nursery teachers. We're not school teachers. I mean that we respect. It, it, we do what we say we do on the can. This is a rough life. This is not for everyone. And, um, but as far as I look back and all the things that I've done within the regiment, I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. This is real life. This is how it really happens. And this is, you know, as you know, um, the family that you create within the regiment, within the SEALs and within the regiment are closer than blood. And so it's, it comes to a time when you are not always going to get on with each other and you're going to have arguments, but this is how it should be and it's the only way to do it. But it sorts itself out in the end and guess what? You just get on with the next task that comes about. Yeah. 
And then when you guys got back, did you, were there implements, uh, changes implemented with, uh, with gear, with tactics, with planning? Um, did you finally get some, uh, puffy jackets, uh, something that wasn't made out of cotton, something that was not, uh, you know, put together in 1942. Um, did you get better gear, better boots, better vehicles, uh, better training maybe for cold weather environments? Were there changes that were implemented based on, uh, on what happened with the three Bravo patrols? Absolutely, uh, Jack. Yeah, all these points were, were brought up. And, and as you know, there's a phrase that we use called lessons learned. So whenever we come back of an operation, we always have a debrief. I know your guys are the same. And just for the listeners, it's, the, you know, we sit down and we just say, right, how can we make it better next time? What yeah. did we do wrong? We call it a positive negative. So it might have been a negative situation. But are we going to bring about a positive outcome next time? Because we don't want that to happen again. So, yes, we realized they were short of equipment and of weapons and of, you know, this happened, that happened, that shouldn't have happened. And it's all written down. It's all logged. And uh, and we hope that it doesn't happen the next time. But do you know something, Jake, when you look at history and the same things seem to happen over and over again is the weather is always a problem. From yeah. guess what? You can't control the weather. Yeah. Um, we have a comedian here in UK and he says, no such thing as bad weather, just wrong clothing. And <laughs> that is true, actually. That is true. And so, and, and we certainly found that out in the Gulf. As I said, some guys paid their life yeah. with not having the right equipment. So, it's yes, it's serious. Um, but no, you were right, Jack. There were a lot of things that were changed and uh, some procedures, uh, equipment, clothing, and uh, yes, we did get some Dana boots like what the seals have, you know. And uh, and uh, but but you know, some Jack as well, you know, it was pointed out that I said, well, look, I had to go to my neighbours. You know, I went to see the seals, and they were well prepared, and they were this, and they knew that, and they knew the other, mm-hmm. and and they took it on the chin. He goes, yes, you were right. We wasn't prepared, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Yes, there's a there's a speed at what things happen. They happen so fast. And especially when the, the Bravo patrols came about, we wasn't ready for that tasking. Yeah. We were BCRs, as we said. When that came about, that was a completely different tasking altogether. And we was not prepared for that at all, no. So definitely lessons learned. And uh, yes, the, so it was all written down. It was all documented. And in the future, yes, things did change. Yeah, that we owe to the guys that didn't make it back is uh, passing on those lessons learned uh, to that the next generation of of operator. Uh, it's not guy we honor the guys that are that are wounded and didn't make it back. But yes. uh, what changed it with you as a as a leader or uh, specifically as an operator coming back now with that experience? Because you still have another over uh, over a decade uh, that you're going to be in the SAS. Um, you're part of this this mission. Um, that's a part of your history. So what changes with you as far as uh, being a leader or an operator? Yes, you're right. I mean, before I went to the SES, I'd done eight and a half years in a parachute regiment. Then I'd be time the Gulf come about in 91. I'd been with a regiment for about four, four and a half years. So yes, you're right. I then served with the regiment for about another 14, 15 years or so. And yes, that gave me a lot of experience. And I think it probably, um, it was my first real major mission it, you know it was a, a large war weren't it, it you know the, the the conflict was massive um so yes I, I learned a lot um i think in terms of conflicts they tend to be smaller uh, or they have been in in the past 
the Gulf War was was a big one, and uh, I think as a as a uh, commander, if you like, I think it it certainly opened my eyes up to see what definitely can go wrong. I always have this plan for expect the best, but plan for the worst. I always do that, even when I'm in Civil Street. I never expect things to go smoothly. Um, and definitely when I'm in the military, I always do that. And I think you know, Jack, as well, that things very, very rarely go to plan. Yes, you have to have a plan. You have to go forward and, 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 and plan what's going to happen, but that plan will always change. You always have to massage it. So answering your question, I think it did change me as far as that, what well, here I am in the mighty SES and even they got things wrong. So um, even though they got better in the future with some of the future missions and tasks that I did with the regiment, but it certainly hardened me up not to kind of depend on things and to work out the way they should do, no matter what unit you were with, no matter whether it's a conventional unit RSF. Again, a long-winded answer to your uh, question, but I think it hardened me up for the future that came about. And uh, and probably not a bad thing, uh, Jake, because it's the nature of our job that it's, as I've said before, it's difficult, it's dangerous. And I think it's good to stay on your toes and not expect things to always work out. And I think, uh, yeah, yeah, I think that uh, the, the Gulf War certainly taught me that, Jack. It certainly did. Yeah, don't let it be a surprise when you when you get knocked down or things don't go according to plan in <laughs> in a military operation or in life in general. That's uh, that's yeah. for sure. And then, yeah. uh, so you have another almost fifteen years in after that. Do you uh, do you deploy again, or what are you? What do those next fifteen years look like for you? Well, I got involved. Um, luckily, um, oh, people might say, "What?" I got involved in just uh, probably just about most conflicts, you know, from Northern Ireland to Bosnia to Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Libya, Somalia, uh, Latin America, most places down Africa, um, to greater or lesser degree. As I said, the regiment has a habit of poking its nose into a lot of other people's <laughs> business. And, uh, um, but, but you know, even though we laugh about that, the, the job that we do initially is to help. I mean, there's countries that, that don't, that can't help themselves. And, and, you know, these bad things that are happening. And what I like about the regiment is that the regiment is willing to do something about it. Now, it's not always um, action-orientated. Sometimes we may go to a certain country, we may gather information, we may find out things that are going right and things that are going wrong, come back and, and give a report and say, this is what we advise you to do. So it's not always offensive. You know, mm -hmm. we go in there sometimes to, to uh, gather information. But yes, there is times when we have to go there and it's inevitable that there is going to be conflict. And I think it's good that there is guys that are willing to do that. Again, not being the big and giant, not sticking my chest out or whatever, but it's, it, it's, it's a good feeling knowing that you've gone to a country and you help save people's lives. That sounds very kind of, you know, the, the dramatic or holier than thou or whatever. I don't mean it to be, but I've always felt in the regiment that in the regiment, we are a great respect respecter of life. Mm. We respect life itself. And we don't like it when we see 
the bullies and the yeah. terrorists of other countries that are trying to make that country or that area unstable. There's got to be people, there's got to be units that help prevent this. As I said, it's not always offensive. Sometimes it's going down there and being passive. But either way, a job has to be done. It's generally difficult. And uh, um, But at the end of the day, if you can help save people's lives, that's got to be a good thing, Jack, hasn't it? Yeah, no, that draws most people to this profession. The profession of arms isn't to, to take life, but to to save it, to kick in those doors and do the job. Right. I mean, you said something about David Sterling earlier on. David Sterling was asked the question, and it was in the Second World War, and it was asked about life, and it, it, the answer was perfect. He says, any life that is taken, any life is a waste, is a waste. That's the enemy or anybody's life. And, 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 and that is true. Any life that is taken is absolute waste. And if we can prevent that, you know, guys, you know, the SEALs, you know, your, your other SF units and the SAF, if we can help prevent that, well, that's got to be a step in the right direction, hasn't it, uh, Jack? Yeah. yeah. Well, so I love how you guys describe the, uh, that sort of thing with slotting. Um, you know, at slotum. <laughs> I love that, that, that term from you guys. Uh, but, uh, you know, you mentioned one in the beginning part of the, this book, you talk about a place it's unnamed. Um, and, uh, so my, my assumption is that maybe there might be a story coming in the future after it goes through, uh, that, that, that process of, uh, review by the department of defense, uh, ministry of defense, um, that, uh, that maybe you'll, maybe some other of those stories will come out. Is that, uh, is that a possibility? Uh, yes, it is a possibility. Nothing's been uh, signed off yet, Jack. Um, there has been talks. Uh, th there was talks even when uh, the, 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 this book first came out about maybe writing something else, but um, nothing for definite. Um, but uh, let's just say that there's, there's plenty more stories to be told. And, <laughs> Sounds uh, like it. Jeez. Yes, and, it, and, it, and it, it would be nice. I mean, I've, I've, I've co-authored this with uh, Damien Lewis, and Damien Lewis is just a, um, a great uh, author. In fact, uh, he's written a series um, of the Second World War about the SES, which yeah. is just magnificent. And, and when I got approached by Damien, um, you know, he said, look, you've got a, a story here which I think needs to be told. And, and, and I didn't think I had, Jack. Uh, you know, <laughs> you, you've probably been the same when people have asked you about stories. You know, uh, I'm getting asked and I'm, I'm going, no, uh, why would... People want to know about Bravo Three Zero. <laughs> Anyhow, um, Damien is is just a fantastic uh, author, and with me co-author, he's uh, he's a historian. Yeah. He's very very fussy. He wants the T's crossed mm. and the I's dotted. And 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 what I liked about him when we were writing the story together, when I talked to him about let's say a weapon system or tactics or mm. about the regiment itself, he knows it straight away. Mm -hmm. he, he, you know, he's there. He's very savvy. He know he knows more about the regiment than I do. And he, <laughs> he, he yes, he's, you know, and he, he's a non-military guy. And but he's he's just so passionate about this sort of genre. Yeah. And he's got to be the number one guy, as I said. His Second World War series about the regiment is absolutely magnificent. And, mm -hmm. and when he approached me, I, I felt quite honoured that he said, "Look, you've got a story here." And 
I think it should be told. Anyhow, as they say, the rest is history. But uh, Damien has been very good. And uh, I well recommend that you have him on your show. He's, I'd love uh, to. Uh, yeah, no, I'd love to. I have I have most. I, I shouldn't say most because he has a lot of books out. I have a lot yes. of his books, um, but but uh, maybe probably not all of them because he has so many. But yeah, there's so many in here. Ghost Patrol, Italian Job, Nazi Hunters, Shadow Raiders, yeah. Band of Brothers, Great Escapes. I mean, he has a, a ton of books and a lot of them um, focus on, on the SAS. Uh, so that's- Yes, uh, they do. Yeah. yeah like By the way, you, you mentioned um, uh, Winston Churchill earlier on. He loves Winston Churchill. Yeah. He, knows he has a book. I think it's in the title yeah. of one of his books, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and as you know, there's um, loads and loads of saying about Winston Churchill, but the history of him and how he brought back Britain from the brink of being defeated you know, by Germany, you know, just, yeah, yeah. you know, one man's passion there, just yeah. absolutely. And, and Damien loves him. So yeah. you two will have a lot in common talking about uh, Winston yeah. Churchill. I'd love and, to talk uh, to him about that. I'd love to soak all his knowledge in about it because yeah. I think the, you know, the 20th century uh, looks a lot different if, uh, if Winston Churchill never lives. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's yeah, a different, yeah. Uh, different world yeah. today. Yeah, you're right. And, uh, but he, um, yes, it, I, I can see that you're passionate about it. I, I think because guys in the military, we're already patriotic, aren't we? You know, it, it, it's a given. So we, we're already, you know, everything that Churchill says, we're bound to agree with, you know. And, and Damien captures him very, very well in, in some of the books. And, uh, and, and when Damien writes these books that we've talked about there, he actually goes in the archives and some of these stories have never been told at all. It actually goes to some families that are still alive that, uh, you know, their grandfathers have got diaries and they actually wow. give them to Damien. And as Damien says, he says, I have to be very respectful, he says, and say, you know, make sure I've captured it properly. And, yeah. and he, he, as I say, he goes into the archives. So he's, he's the guy, if, if I'm going to do a book about ESES, he's the number he's the one guy. guy to pick. Oh, it's so great. Like, I'm looking forward to talking to him and I hope that yes. you go forward and, uh, and write these other, other stories once again, because today's kids need heroes. They need people to, to look up to, to aspire to, um, more so than any other time in our, our two nations history, like I said, but, um, this is fantastic. SAS Bravo three zero. Thank you for writing this. And I want to read one last little thing. And it's the quote from the beginning. Um, and it says, we are the pilgrims master. We shall go always a little further. It may be beyond the last blue mountain barred with snow across that angry or that glimmering sea. And that's James Elroy Flecker, the unofficial regimental collect of the SAS. And that's pretty cool. What does that, uh, what does that mean to you? Yes. It's, it gives you the chills, doesn't it? There's actually a, another verse to that as well. And, and what it was, it comes back to David Sterling again, is that um, people ask me about that and, and, in our regiment, we have the, the sandy berry. And, of course, the sandy berry is that we are linked with a desert. So um, David Sterling decided to have a sandy berry. Um, um, we have blue that is linked with us. Now, David Sterling, okay, um, was educated at Cambridge. And they have a pompadour blue. So we have a blue in our belt. So whenever you see blue that is linked with the regiment, it is to do with Cambridge. And that was because David Sterling, our founder, okay, uh, was educated at Cambridge University. Okay, so we have the Sandy Berry. We have the Blue Belt. And our wing dagger is to do with um, ISIS stroke, the, um, the wings 
of Isis, which was a a a a uh, a winged goddess of Egypt. Okay, and this winged goddess was a protector of all things good, and because the headquarters was in Cairo, Egypt. Mm. David Sterling decided to take on that mythology of the Egyptians. And so our wings of Isis and the winged dagger. Some people say it's a sword, and a sword is always mean strength. So the wings, the dagger itself, the winged dagger, the blue, okay, and the berry. And then coming to that is that James Elroy Flecker was a poet and it was David Sterling that liked his work. And he said that that saying depicted the SAS perfectly. Wow. So that become the unofficial collect of the SAS regiment. And that is how the colors, the daggers, the wings, and the actual SAS collect all come together to form the SAS regiment. And whenever I hear that the pilgrim's master, we shall always go a little further beyond that last blue mountain Bardwich store across the angry or that glimmering sea always gives you the chills. And by the way, you read it perfectly. So well done. Oh, well, thank you. It, uh, I love that. Always a little further. You know, always got to get up, keep moving forward. It's uh, yeah, man. Thank you so much for spending all this time with me. It's been a huge, huge honor for me to get to talk to, to you about this and these other things we discussed. And I hope that we can meet up in person one day. I, I hope we can make that happen soon. Uh, GIK has been an absolute pleasure. It's been great talking to you. And uh, do you know what, what makes me feel good? I'm glad I got the story in about the seals in the book there. I know. That is great. <laughs> That's good. You when know, I got that to that part, I was like, oh, all right. Re- nice. I really got made uh, these. Um, when I see you personally, if I come over to the States, I'll make a point to come over and see you. Okay, oh, that'd be friend? amazing. That'd be amazing. Because yeah, you know yeah, what? I got yeah. to that page and you get to the top of a page and seal all in caps pops out, even though it's like, yes. you know, halfway down. Yes. And I was like, yes. oh boy. This could go yes. two, one of two ways right here. And uh, I, was so, I was so glad that it went uh, in a positive I, direction. I'll tell, tell you what we did get wrong, uh, Jack, and, and it slipped through. We knew about it and we said something about it. I know your guys don't use sergeants. I, I know. I saw I was, chief yeah. yeah. So I didn't, met, yeah. It says sergeant in there. And I was like, well, he probably means chief or, uh, yeah, yeah, or it could yeah, have been yeah. an E6, could have been an E6, yeah. a petty officer, but I'm guessing it was probably the chief. Um, well, what we, yeah. what we knew we, we, we recognize that, you know, we said, oh, right, we need to change that. But as usual, we keep saying, change it, change it or that. And, you know, when I, and even when the book come out, I saw there were other mistakes as yeah, well. Yeah, that's and, always going to be mistakes. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. So uh, anyhow, they know about it. And I think in paperback, I've said to them, I said, paperback in another few months time, make sure that that gets changed. So uh, for you, uh, uh, we, we will get it changed. Is that okay, my friend? <laughs> that is okay. But you know what? Because because uh, you're from the UK, it totally yeah. makes sense. I oh, yeah. In my mind, I was yeah. like, I love it. It's yeah. fine. Like I knew exactly yeah. what you meant. So uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> I, think, I think we've only had, I don't come up on social media. So and say by something. the way, by the way, and I go, well, that's a fair one. That's a fair uh, one. Like, there's know, always going to be somebody on social media that's going to point out what's wrong. I mean, it's just <laughs> how it is. And yeah, uh, yeah, so yeah. I try not to do it. I don't know if I ever, I don't think no, I ever no, have, but no, I, no, I try yeah, to, yeah. I try not to do that sort of thing. Um, but no, no, we'll, uh, we'll get it changed. But uh, Jack, can I just say uh, an absolute pleasure, my friend? I'm glad we've, uh, I'm glad we're both putting water back in the well. What about that? I like it. 
Just wanted to say a quick thank you to Navy Federal Credit Union for taking such good care of me and my family over the years. I've been a member since 1996, right there. There's my Navy Federal Credit Union cue card right there. So yeah, been a member for quite some time now. They've done a fantastic job with me and my family. And I know that investing and saving can be stressful and Navy Federal Credit Union takes that stress away. A lot of educational materials and they can help you get on track in 2022 when it comes to saving and investing. So go to navyfederal.org backslash save and invest. Trust me, you won't regret it. All right. Mountain Tough. MTN Tough. Awesome. There's a huge announcement from the crew over at Mountain Tough. MTN Tough. After two years in the making, behind the scenes, the Mountain Tough Plus native app is finally here for you and ready to be downloaded on all the platforms. iPhone, Android, Apple TV, Roku, and more. MTN Tough Plus is the fitness app trusted by the dedicated, trusted and used by dedicated backcountry hunters, wildlife firefighters, law enforcement officers, and U.S. military special operations forces. And now you can train on your time, your way from your phone, tablet, TV, or web. MDN Tough Plus is an all-access subscription, giving you access to all Mountain Tough programs, all new programs, and bonus content. Awesome. If you've been following me for a while, you know that I have prioritized finishing my latest novel and moving. This will probably be one of the last things I do from this studio as we move to the new house and new studio. Um, so that is about to change my priorities moving forward. Well, I'm going to get better at scheduling these things and actually getting those workouts in, then working for about three or four hours on the novel, then jumping into the business side of thing for an hour or two. But uh, point being, MTN Tough, Mountain Tough is the program that I am using. Uh, I've been scouring the website, checking out the app. It is absolutely awesome. And these days with so much going on, I need something that's going to tell me what to do because uh, I'm going to shift right from doing one thing, bam, into the workout and having it right there, ready to rock. That's exactly what I need. So thank you guys for putting this together and putting so much thought, time, energy, effort and testing into it. Um, because what I want to do these days, uh, is be ready for life. Uh, and yeah, I'm probably not jumping out of a plane anymore and, uh, and going, doing those special operations type missions. Um, now it is training for life and to keep up with very active kids. Um, but this is what I'm going to use MTN mountain tough, increase mental toughness, build muscle, improve endurance anytime, anywhere from any mobile device. Thousands of workouts are available in the MTN Tough Plus subscription. You can start today with no equipment needed to start. That's what also that I liked what I saw. You can have equipment or no equipment. Um, and there are workouts for every level, beginner, intermediate, advanced, elite. Um, just get on there and check it out. And then more importantly, get after it. Uh, everything you need is in one spot. Cardio to strength mountain tough programs are designed to be built around the build the optimal athlete. Thousands of hours of testing on dedicated mountain hunters, first responders, and military personnel programs for everyone those who hit the gym and the heavyweights, and those who like to work out at home with no gear at all. Stream from your TV, laptop, mobile, or tablet. Download workouts in iOS and Android compatible with Chromecast and AirPlay. 
MTN Tough has been the trusted training for dedicated individuals for years now, including U.S. military special operations and dedicated backcountry hunters. There is no excuse for you not to start today, as after two years of research and development, the MTN Tough Plus native app is ready to download. With MTN Tough Plus, you can conquer your goals with thousands of workouts and train with equipment or just your body weight on your phone, tablet, TV, or web browser. MTN Tough is offering Danger Close listeners 20% off all new Mountain Tough Plus subscriptions with the code DANGERCLOSE. Go to mtntough.com and enter the code DANGERCLOSE to receive 20% off brand new Mountain Tough Plus subscription. That, again, is mtntough.com and enter the code DANGERCLOSE. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. What I have here today, Vertex Watch. Check this thing out. I have talked about it before, but I figured I should wear it because I just had a pod, did a podcast with Des Powell of the SAS. And this Vertex Watch right here has history with the UK military. So kind of cool that uh, a, a future generation of someone who is involved in this company back in World War II is bringing them back. So uh, this is a heritage edition uh, tribute piece for, for World War II and uh, awesome. Vertex watches. Thank you guys. Awesome. What else do we have here? Wilson Combat. Look at that. You guys know Wilson Combat, but they do grip modules now for the SIG P365, which if you've been following me for a while, you know I'm a huge fan of. So uh, Wilson Combat sent a few of these. You can put some fire control units in here uh, for the 365. And I'm looking forward to trying these things out. So cool what you can do now with all the grip modules, barrels, um, all the rest of it. So uh, very cool what you can customize uh, with these grip modules and with the, the SIG P365. They do them on the 320 models as well. But, uh, and look at that little desert tan action. Yes. And if you just watched the podcast with Des Powell, you know why they have the desert colored berets. Um, that was really cool. All right. Those Tim Abel. So Tim Abel, uh, I first became aware of him on a show called soldier of fortune Inc. Back in 1997, 98, when I was finishing up buds, getting to my first seal team, former army Rangers, been a guest on the podcast, uh, a hunter, a patriot, incredible guy. He was in a short film called Fathers and Sons that uh, Michael Broderick, uh, who's another actor, former Marine, uh, put together during COVID that is a terminal list inspired story with James Reese's dad and a former platoon mate of his uh, talking over a game of pool. And it is, uh, it's one of those films, it's short, so it's 10 minutes long. It's called A Short, um, but it's one of those films that has heart. And uh, definitely check it out. You can go back in my blog. I put a little bit more information uh, last year on my blog about it, but you can just type in Fathers and Sons, Tim Abel, Michael Broderick, uh, Terminal List, and it should pop right up. You can check it out. It's on my, um, my YouTube channel as well. So what Tim Abel did was, oh man, it's so cool. He sent me a Gerber that he used in the series in Soldier of Fortune, Inc., which was a... Uh, uh, Jerry Bruckheimer, Don Simpson, bringing the uh, big screen action to the small screen back in 97 and 98. So uh, super cool. Sent me a book that I think I would, I would like, Tim, thank you so much. And then this is super cool. The Soldier of Fortune crew shirt, man, in my size and everything. So 
man, awesome. Thank you so much. Um, and unfortunately, uh, another actor that was on that show, Brad Johnson just passed away recently. Um, I had the, the good fortune of meeting him a couple of times over the years at, uh, different, uh, hunting shows and, uh, what a nice guy, just, just incredible. He was in always, he was in uh, flight of the intruder for those who remember that film. And then also in soldier of fortune Inc. So, um, such a, such a great guy and thoughts and prayers to, to his family. Um, Tim, thank you for sending all that. Thank you for your work in fathers and sons and for the, everything else that you have done. Um, both uh, personally and professionally and all you do for veterans. So thank you, my friend. And what is this? Look at this. Bam. What is this? Volume two, 1911 series. I haven't even opened these up yet because these ones came in the slip cases. Uh, I had without slip cases, I had those uh, already. I've been using them for research on this last novel. So uh, these are the Vickers guides, uh, James Rupley and Larry Vickers do these. The series is incredible. The photos Absolutely amazing. I know I've held these up before, but uh, these ones just came in the slipcases. So that is incredibly cool. These are never far from reach as I'm doing the research for weapons in my novels. And uh, anybody who's a student of weapon craft should have these on their shelves. So vickersguide.com, check them all out. They're absolutely fantastic. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast. An Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. For more on Des Powell, for sure, get this book. And you can go to the show notes and find out how to connect with him on the social channels. I sincerely hope that he writes more about his experiences in the SAS and his experiences after his time in the SAS as a contractor. He's had quite the journey. My next novel, In the Blood, is coming May 17th and is available for pre-order now. Till the next time. Take care out there, stay safe, be strong, keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm -hmm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What box do you fit in? Exactly, Which box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or right, right. An How, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm -hmm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.